Hello and welcome to The Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Sammy Roberts and I'm joined today by Matthew Castle. Hello. How's your playthrough of Yakuza Kiwami going, Matthew? What's the weekly oh, right, update? We're just cutting to the good stuff, are we? Uh, yep, the hot content that, the, that all the kids want to know about is how is Matthew getting through the um, 900 Yakuza games that have deployed onto <laughs> uh, Xbox Game Pass? Uh, I'm still playing Yakuza Kiwami 1, so the first game. I've hit. Have you played Yakuza One? The PS2 original. Well, in any form, yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah. So I'm in one of the the many stretches where you're joined by the little girl, and she uh, just sort of sucks <laughs> <laughs> because this is a game about cool gangsters, but you have to hang out with this cute little kid. It's it's like a trope. I really hate in things. Isn't that? Um, but. We can probably go into this in more depth when we do a Yakuza episode. Yeah, um, I mean, but my hot take is they should have they should have uh, got rid of that kid. I know she's integral to the whole thing, but man alive, she drags it down. <laughs> I mean, I thought this is like Kiyu's whole thing in the game, isn't he? Like good Yakuza dad, and people are like, "Oh, that's so wholesome." Well, yeah, but I'm not interested in that side of his character. I'm interested in him like thumping sixty year old gangsters. <laughs> With like amazing tattoos and incredible wrinkle tech on their faces. Yeah. The thing is, when a kid's there, everyone has to tiptoe around it. I don't. I don't like it in, when it happens in films either. You know, like where, you know, like what's that one with Denzel Washington where he used to look after the little girl? Man on fire. Uh, man on fire. You know, it's like we're gonna be really edgy and violent, but then we've got to be kind of sweet and sentimental and twee because there's a kid in the room, and it it always guts. A, a thriller action experience for me, but you know this. This is probably better say for the for the Yakuza podcast, yeah, exactly. where I can upset everyone with other other similar views. <laughs> That's good. Well, yeah. So there you go. Matthew is not a fan of films where older gruff men um, guard small children. Um, Chris yeah. Hemsworth extraction. That's uh, straight on the fucking trash heap with Matthew Garson. Oh no, I'm I'm not interested. One of my least favorite tropes. <laughs> um, I have to ask, how is Tsushima going? Have you uh, forced uh, Khan, the Khan, whatever his name is, from the, the third island? Uh, yes, he's uh, fucked off um, to the grave, actually. He's dead. Um, spoiler alert. Oh, right. Um, I have, nice. I have finished the game, yes. It took me, I think, 68 hours in the end um, doing... 68? Yeah. I mean, that's not like the running time of the game story. That was because I was focused on the first island, clearing out every single bit of the map and then realized when i got to the second map oh no if i do this i won't play any games until like july so um yes i've uh, i've called it after doing all of the main story quests and the uh the finale of the the um the side quests as well because there's a lot of kind of narrative based side quests in the game involving supporting characters so it's over matthew i can play something else now um, finally you're free to be honest though when i got to thursday night and i had like um time on my hands to play anything or do anything i couldn't I felt slightly empty inside. You realise that you kind of need these tunnels of like objectives and stuff to do to stave off the lockdown madness, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. The only the only cure is to start Assassin's Creed Valhalla immediately. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a lot of that. That's there's like a I played that for like a hundred hours. <laughs> Jeez, well there you go. That'll be uh, that'll be next for me. Um, so Matthew, this episode kind of a sequel episode to Games Magazine covers from Hell. And also our game review scores we got wrong. Uh, we sort of like do these sort of loosely themed, I don't know, they're all focused around stuff we did when we were like, you know, working full time in media, mostly on magazines. 
and specifically bad stuff it seems <laughs> everything's from hell it's basically like come listen to these two fuck-ups talk about all the things they did wrong well it's the thing is it's not all about that it's just that i thought from hell was quite a catchy title um so yeah if, no you're right it's good if i called it the that's good that's a good cover line cover line strategy exactly if i called it the developer interviews episode people would think that's so wank also i don't want people to mistake me for thinking i'm good at things um i'm very <laughs> very very keen to head that off at the pass and just make it clear that um you know the goof ups are very much part of the usp here i don't think i can tell anyone how to like do their shit i just want to tell some fun <laughs> stories i'm sure it's the same for you too right yeah yeah basically mm. So, yeah, in this episode, we've got quite a lot of discussion about, like, what it's like to interview game developers, the overall dynamics of it, um, what makes a good developer interview, and so on and so forth. And then in the second part, we're going to talk about five different examples of interviews we did where there is an interesting element to discuss. The From Hell bit is definitely kind of overstated here. Like, none of mine were, were bad. I've actually had very few interviews that I thought were, like, a disaster, um, and I wouldn't talk about those on the... Um, the podcast anyway generally um because they might make me look bad but um so yeah it's going to be a fun one though we'll, we'll hopefully kind of um take you inside what it's like to um speak to game developers and what that part of like working in games media is like and how um historically it's been it's taken us into the orbit of some very interesting figures i would say um so mm. people will definitely enjoy hearing it it's very much the name drop episode isn't it matthew <laughs> going over it, it like one of the kind of bugbears of, of of my entire kind of career was how many big named people I I never got to interview. Like I've only ever face to face interviewed one person from Nintendo, mm. which is kind of crazy given that I worked on Nintendo Max for like whatever 8 years. Um and like n- like a reasonably decent name but not one of the biggies mm. and I was always very sore about that. So um, you know, I definitely have a list of people I'd still love to interview. Yeah, it's sort of like um, Nintendo figures in particular are quite uh, quite rare to like get um, hold of. Like I've I've interviewed yeah. one, but I was only on Games TM for a year, so and I I got to interview quite a prominent one as we'll um, as we'll discuss. Um, but uh, yeah, I think nonetheless, um, Matthew, we've um, we've each int- interviewed some uh, people that um, our listeners would find interesting to hear about. I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so to jump into it then, Matthew, do you remember the first developer that you interviewed? Sort of. I This is terrible. I can't remember the specific name, but I remember that it was for uh, Scarface on Wii, the Scarface port. Okay. And this was Radical Entertainment, who the, the bods who went on to do, uh, like, Prototype, and then I think they just got absorbed into Activision in the end, and that was kind of it. Mm. Um, and this was like a nightmare. This was a bit of a wake-up call. Because up until this point, this is probably a couple of issues into my time on Endgamer. I hadn't done any interviews. You know, I'd just been writing away quite happily, fitting into it and thinking, oh, this is all right. I can do all this. And interviews is like the first bit of specialist sort of know-how that you need to, you know, that you don't necessarily have. You know, people aren't sort of just naturally built to do interviews. Mm. Like there is a technique and it is a skill I'd say beyond writing, and it it was a, a weird moment of realization of like, oh, I don't actually know how to do this. I mean, right down to like, this was a telephone interview, and I didn't have any kind of recording device, so I was trying to write what they were saying, right? <laughs> um, which was just a nightmare because 
I also can't do shorthand. So it was just like me trying to like paraphrase, which is why if you read the Scarface interview, you'll see the interview quotes are at max like sentences long because that's all I got. <laughs> like such a, a just terrible, terrible interview. Um, wow. I was super nervous because I was like, I don't want to come across as an idiot. And yeah, that, that combined with just the technical side of actually doing the interview kind of... It was a good experience in a way, because I came away thinking, like, never again will I let something happen like that to me. <laughs> yeah. So was um, that a kind of, like, a thing to um, a wake-up call in the sense of you bought a dictaphone after that and then, like, a phone tap? These things that, like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all, all, yeah, all, all those things. And and also, like, prep for, like, how, how you actually do an interview, you know, in terms of, like, the questions I had. I thought were well, really interesting. We'd be, you know, I know I had X amount of time. And this was, like, the first time I'd ever encountered a developer, you know, in, in an in, you know interviewing them. And this was, like, the time that I learned that developers can, like, shut down really interesting questions quite quickly mm. or not give you very much and then you're left like oh shit i need a backup and they haven't like said enough for me to launch off of either yeah i mean it happens i think like um i was trying to recall my first interview and i think it was um quite a nice man from codemasters you know how codemasters every now and then like every three or four years would make like a five out of ten shooter alongside all their racing games right um, <laughs> It was a man who worked on one of those conflict denied ops. I'm pretty sure that was like the first person I recorded um, talking to. So uh, yeah, I, I I sort of did the same thing um, where I you know was sort of fumbling my way through it. And yeah, it's very much like um, review writing where or like covers where you're sort of learning by doing in a lot of ways. Mm. Most jobs most jobs are like this, I think. But yeah, interviews not something I've ever ever been trained for, um, and kind of a weird business anyway because. Uh, we'll get into this in a bit, I'm sure. But like, um, you know, generally speaking, like developer and publisher interviews are set up with the goal of promoting a game. So it's it's not like they're there to like personally fulfill you by being there. Yeah, they're there to promote a thing. So you are you can ask certain questions and they'll shut them down, and that's considered like a fair part of the transaction, really. Um, but it's uh, it's an it's an interesting old thing. So Matthew, do you think? you got good at game developer interviews over time or do you think you're good at them now oh it's still really still really varies to be honest um i think i am good at prepping for them like i think i you know i i always go in prepared i think i'm good at asking good questions i think i have good questions and most of the times i'll i'll get some i'll get some good answers um i still don't know if my actual like in interview technique is like amazing um like when i listen back to myself on audio tapes i sound like a total buffoon um i sound like a total buffoon who's got who has actually got some good questions but i kind of sabotage them as i'm doing the interview by like there's a thing lots of i think lots of people get into this habit of they get quite nervous or they have some nerves and so they over elaborate on questions when Mm. actually most of these questions stand alone absolutely fine and you end up going like doing like a huge preamble to set up the question or basically justifying the question after you've asked for it it's when you listen back to your tape and you're like man why did i talk for like two minutes between these two answers this is insane Mm. like but you just feel yourself rambling away um i still have a bit of that occasionally i would never ever release ever release any audio i've done of an interview (laughs) um 
but I know I would I would be mortified if that ever came out. Like I'd rather like naked pictures of me leaked online <laughs> than people got to hear my interview transcripts. Um, um, which of the two is more likely, Matthew, to to leak online? Do you think interview transcripts? That's a relief. Um, yeah. Without going into it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I uh, but I, I I can always you know. I can tidy them up and present them in a way that I look a lot better on the page. So I, I think I can actually get the goods, which is the important thing. Yeah, it's, you make an interesting point there about um, interviews, your questions not being too long. You kind of... I My least favourite kinds of interviews are ones where the question box is like longer or as long as the um, answer box because the person's yeah. gone on a kind of a long monologue about... I don't know themselves or a or a subject before getting to the question, and I think, like you say, people just want a really punchy um, answer. Uh, sorry, pu- punchy question, because otherwise you risk answering the question for them and um, kind of deflating the answer. So yeah, I definitely oh, agree God. with you. I'm I'm quite I I went through a period of being quite bad for that, where it was almost like like I'm. It's almost like I'm taking a guess at what the answer is going to be because I want someone to be like, "Yes, you're very smart. You clearly know all about game design. Very clever." Um, which they never are. Like they're just like, yeah, you've kind of said, you know, it, 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 or or it feels like you're leading them to a particular answer, which some people can react negatively to. Yeah, it's like I've, um, you know, I've been studying like programming for like ten years, and you're like a buffoon who has opinions on like Diddy Kong. You know what I mean? Like, it's, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, you kind of you never want to be that guy. You never want to feel that way when you're asking questions. Um, uh, that's it's not... like the, the, the other subset of this, and I don't do this myself, is the person, is the interviewer who considers himself hilarious and include all the stuff in the answers where the developer's like laughs in brackets or even worse when the developer's like, that's so fucking funny. What a fucking funny question. You're hilarious, man. And you're like, don't put that in. Like, <laughs> how self-serving. Gross. Yeah, if I sort of echo what you say there about how if my interviews were ever broadcast... Um, some kind of regulator like Ofcom um, would um, intervene and say, "Excuse me, sir, this um, your question technique is so poor. We're going to have to take you off the air and ensure you're never broadcast again." Um, and I also notice I've got loads of irritating ticks. I think at the end of questions, I say, "Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely." <laughs> it's like they must think I'm a right jebber to me saying that. Um, but I've noticed over and over again that the same sort of um, ticks kind of come up with me, and uh, I've never quite been able to shake them. Um, unless I'm doing a sort of on-stage interview at the PC Gamer Weekender event we did, I had a for some reason I decided I would host a stage for two days, and uh, I, I interviewed um, developers non-stop throughout that weekend. I think I did an all right job. Um, I was, but uh, yeah, it's sort of I think like when it's just me on the phone and you can't see the person, it's it can be a little bit intimidating, can't it? And you do end up just sort of like. The saying random shit and being like, ah, oh, filled with self-loathing afterwards. Yeah, one of my nightmare moments uh, when I was working for Rock Paper Shotgun was um, we were going to do a stream of like indie developer interviews from EGX Berlin, um, and so we went over and the original pitch. What we normally do when we stream indie games from the the EGX Expo stuff is is like we find a little quiet room and we just basically set up our camera and we we have the developers in there and that's part of the pitch. You say like you know we'd love to talk to you about your game. Don't worry, it's going to be in a little room. Like it's literally just going to be me and and Alice who is running the stream. But when we went there and we had our little room and it was all fine. But uh, at EGX Berlin that year, uh, Kojima was going to be there talking about Death Stranding. 
Mm-hmm. And so they built this huge stage for Kojima, which obviously you kind of need to like pull out all the stops. But like that's all they really had was like Kojima the next day. So they had this huge stage and they were like, well, you can do your day of, you know, indie game developer interviews on the Kojima stage. <laughs> and you're like, oh, man, it's like the first thing you saw when you came in was like me sitting there with, you know, me incredibly nervous, an indie developer incredibly nervous, you know, I had to do, I think I did like 14 developer sessions in a row that day on that stage. And like, luckily, no one came and sort of sat to watch it because it it must have seemed just a bit obscure and strange, I think. Um, But then you're dealing with like sitting in front of this this very, you know, like five disinterested looking German dudes um, because no one turned, you know, no one was sitting there to watch it. So that takes on a strange vibe of its own public interviewing that is tough yeah it was um it was actually the the cool thing is when you are interviewing people who like you're um you know the people at the event are excited about like um it was cool when i was interviewing the guy who um the code one of the co-designers of ftl and into the breach about into the breach um around the time it came out and that was it was cool because like the the seats would fill up and people were genuinely engaged and stuff like that um but yeah i agree with you there's that kind of like nervous thing of like oh i hope people actually turn up to this or i'm gonna feel like i'm sort of drowning in my own sort of like cold sweat Um, yeah (laughs) uh, so matthew what do you think makes a good game developer interview uh so it, it varies for different purposes i think based on what you're actually using, what you plan to use the interview for, you know, what what, what the intentions are for it. Um, I mean, the really obvious thing is to get something that no one else has. Um, not necessarily, like, some amazing, like, mind-blowing, like, headline-setting kind of exclusive, but just something different and interesting. You just don't want to be repeating an answer, and that does happen. Like, it's really, it really bums me out when, when we've you know gone to an event and then we do our feature and then you read other people's features and it's basically word for word in other people's interviews um that that's always you know never never jolly um but like generally just i just want something that's kind of colorful and kind of human sounding on the page i mean it's really the baseline um because some people speak in like PR lines you know they basically speak like a press release Mm. and that stuff's just completely like dead on the page um so you know I'd say the tone something that sounds like a human that's good if they say something no one else is that isn't anywhere else that's an added bonus I mean on top of that I think you're into like the specifics of you know the very rare occasions where you do like genuinely get something new to say or you do break a massive story i mean i personally don't necessarily like pursue that um we'll talk about this a bit later um i think like the one time and it wasn't even an in-person interview this was a this was an email interview the one time like i genuinely felt like i 100 percent knocked it out of the park in terms of the answers i got where i did two email interviews with uh, Shu Takumi, the creator of Ace Attorney, when I was on official Nintendo magazine. And at the point, that point, he didn't really have anything to promote. This was a little bit before, uh, I think I did one of them. It was just, I think it was the 100th issue of, of O&M. And the big pitch was like, we can do, each writer would do their like dream feature, trying to use the 100 issue to basically get it done. And I just said to Capcom, listen, all I really want to do is like a big Ace Attorney retrospective. You haven't got anything to promote, so I know it's probably a waste of time. And they were like, yeah, well, you know, send the questions across. Let's see what happens. So I basically wrote like a massive, like my 
like genuinely things I wanted to know about Ace Attorney and sort of forgot about it and maybe sent it like three months before. And then it came back and he'd written loads. I mean, this was for an interview, email interview, this was absolutely like I'd never seen anything like it. Mm. I mean, you know, he'd maybe written like 4,000, 5,000 words. I mean, just pages and pages and pages breaking down everything I wanted to know. I couldn't believe it. And I like this idea that Shutakumi's just sitting in an office not doing much. And he got those through and he just went, like spent a whole day on it or something. But it was just um, like, if you go on the, East, the various Phoenix Wright Wikipedias, like there's tons of page references to that interview because it had like new stuff. And that's like the only time that's ever really happened for me where I was just like, wow, I genuinely like added to the kind of what we know about these games which felt like quite precious hmm. that is awesome so is that interview on like internet archive or something is that is that yeah easy i think well i did a second one for when um ace attorney uh professor Layton ace attorney came out um we did basically did round two and i basically started where the the other interview left off and even referred back to i think like oh the last time you said blah 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 and he did the same thing he gave me another absolute massive chunk i think that interview did go up on the website so that's there somewhere on the internet archives i'll try digging it out um Mm. i think i actually ended up reusing a lot of it on um (laughs) rock paper shotgun (laughs) of all things um I think that I yeah I reprinted chunks of it or chunks I didn't use as a supporter post. So I'll see if I can dig a link out to that. Um, but yeah, he really like yeah he just went for it. It was great. Okay, and it were really nerdy questions as well. Um, yeah, that was that was nice. Because the last thing you want to do is just recycle the same anecdote, you know. Because I feel that there are some people have like five stories that they tell over and over again, like every Charles Martinet interview ever is exactly the same because he tells the story of how he became Mario and how he found the voice and that story's been told and it's it's kind of like a redundant interviewee now I feel because of that um but yeah this was yeah I'd just not seen anything like it and it helps he's a writer you know Takumi is a writer like first and foremost and they were very much like a writer's answers um but yeah I, I lucked out big time god bless Capcom absolutely amazing job twice they did they yeah like career highlights for me for sure yeah i bet i think it's interesting that because um obviously like when publishers set up interviews generally speaking they're promoting something so when you do actually catch uh developers outside the cycle because you have to ask and then they have to go and ask and you get the senses about like three a three person chain at minimum between you and the developer um, yeah it means that like you're not certain you're actually going to get the access so when you do get someone outside of that cycle and you get they give you the time to give you genuinely insightful answers. That's um, that's incredibly exciting, and it does happen. It's uh, it's not that common, but sometimes you just ask and you get. Yeah, I feel um, like yeah. in a way it's happening more and more now because people now have the distance from like classic games of our lifetimes that they are many of them no longer at those studios or those studios don't exist, and we're getting into the realms of like oral histories great deep dive making ofs there there are a lot you know every year there are at least a couple of articles that feel like they really blow a game wide open you know like um again this is going to sound self-serving but i I didn't do this but there was a a great um deus ex retrospective on 
uh, RPS last year. Was that 20 years of Deus Ex? 15 years? I can't remember. Um, I think that was... I want to say that was Jeremy Peel. I might be wrong, but... um, you know, and and there's been some great, uh, like, was it, was it Polygon did the the massive like Final Fantasy seven? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's quite funny actually, Matthew, because I um wrote a making of Final Fantasy seven feature for Retro Gamer in like 2010 or 2011, and then that had like two email Q and As, and then I saw that, and it was like, um, it was like in Civilization when like a phalanx goes up against like a tank. Um, <laughs> And you're like, oh, okay, right. This is like, you know, scorched earth now. Like, my time is over. Um, this was, for a, for a long time, this was like the best resource on how Final Fantasy VII was made. And now this incredible thing exists. <laughs> um, but that's what I, but I think we're going to get more of that. Like, just because people are, are now, like, just maybe like legally they're in a space where they can talk about stuff a bit more. And, you know, it feels like we're going to start filling in the gaps. But like the best, I feel like the best interviews I've read in the last few years have been about things from 15 years ago Mm. well i think um on the square enix subject there as well like um i don't know if you read edges final fantasy cover feature they did the most recent anniversary the 30th maybe um and they had like an oral history for the entire series including a sakaguchi interview Um, oh yeah 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 something simon parkin put it together it was really really good Um, but i think even square enix has stories they don't want to tell so I um, wrote a Final Fantasy XII feature for Retro Gamer when the um, Zodiac Age remaster came out. And I tried to ask about what happened with um, Matsuno, the original director. He left Final Fantasy XII sort of like partway into development. You got you got the sense that the you'll never actually like hear the proper story of how this happened. So I think I agree yeah. with you. Like people are more honest about stuff now. And like, you know, there are sort of like, good reasons to do it i think in terms of like fan goodwill but even so i think a lot of stories will still just never be told um Mm. particularly in um japanese game development where i feel like um just generally speaking access is a little bit harder to get you know yeah and it's why the iwata asks was so precious because you know here was what could have just been a hugely corporate exercise in just promoting their games really the stories they told were not uh, you know they, they they weren't just there to sort of like hit selling points on the games they were talking about. They they felt really genuine. Like they really felt like someone digging into like what's our process, what's our thought process. Um, you know, incredibly transparent. You know, I've I've seen plenty of like developer in house interview stuff which do feel totally bogus. Um, which is like tell us about how you did the you know tell us about the amazing shooting in your upcoming Tomb Raider or whatever and you're like yeah right um, but here they, they were so niche and nerdy they they felt you know the product of of genuine curiosity um, it kind of bugs me that like some of the best game interviews of all time were done entirely in house at Nintendo uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it makes up for you know, me not being able to interview anyone from Nintendo. Because I used to think, well, okay, I've not been able to interview Miyamoto. But at the same time, like, there aren't, like, and I, I don't like, I don't mean to, like, cast shade on anyone in particular. Like, there aren't many essential Miyamoto interviews outside of Awata Asks. Hmm. You know, like, it's very kind of, uh, you know, even he has, like, a kind of PR mode, I feel, um, that you get. I mean, I thought it was interesting, actually. Last, I think it was last year, 
Simon Parkin did a Miyamoto interview for The New Yorker, mm. which was one of the more unusual ones because it was super casual. Like it was, he didn't even really have anything to promote. It was, it was more of just like a profile piece, and it was talking about his habits and like whether his kids played games and like his life outside of Nintendo, which I think is like a a mystery quite a lot of people are, are interested in because they know his games and they know the the making of stories um, and that kind of approach of someone who's so famous that you're just curious like how they function as a human being hmm. um I, th- I thought resulted in in like a pretty strong piece i thought it was i thought that was a, a a really good miyamoto interview yeah it's interesting miyamoto because um he's someone who i definitely like you say think he has a sort of like a public disposition a sort of like you know a, almost like mascot like disposition but then if you ever read about the story of Retro Studios and how a bunch of their projects got cancelled and how Metroid Prime became a first-person shooter, um, that does not sound like the same Miyamoto. Like, the behind behind the scenes sounds like a more kind of, like, um, a bit more ruthless and managerial, um, based on, like, the stories I've read about that studio. Mm. Um, and, you know, you expect that because, you know, Nintendo is, like, you know, Nintendo has an image and, and that's kind of very much part of that. But... Um, yeah, I agree with you. That parking interview was really good. Um, but there's loads of like really searching questions that would be cool to ask Miyamoto that I feel like will never get asked just because mm. those interviews are so rare, you know? Yeah, for sure. For mm. sure. I mean, I've always, I've always resented not having the chance to interview him. But at the same time, like, that would be, I'd be so stressed. I'd be so stressed to interview <laughs> him. Like, just to think, you know, you have this one shot, uh, at kind of getting something new or, or 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 making some kind of headway like that would be that would be a nightmare. I get nervous just thinking about the potential for that. So what about you? What do you look for in in an interview? What do you think makes a good developer interview? I think it varies very much on like you say who you're writing for. So with a magazine, you almost want to poke at different features in the game and get elaboration on what they are uh, from the developer. And um, mm. online interviews are, are like that too. But also, you know, online, you also are thinking about like what potential news can we get from this interview and stuff like that. Right. Um, so it's interesting. You you mentioned, um, you know, some examples there of like um, stuff that, you know, no one had ever heard before. Something I did break on PC Gamer was I asked someone from Sega Europe about the idea of more sort of Sega console games coming to PC. And, oh, right, sure. Yeah, and so this... Um, Basically, I asked, like, will you bring Persona and Yakuza to PC? Mm. And the answer was, like, it was something like, um, there is a list of games that we know people want to um, bring onto PC, and we are committed to, you know, trying to make that list happen on PC. And those games are on the list. It was like, I'm paraphrasing there, but that was basically what they said. And that was, like, one of the biggest stories that came out of E3 for us, because, you know, this was before anyone knew that Yakuza was going to be on PC. So... In that case, yeah, like um, the interview generally was quite interesting. You know, it was getting Sega's Sega's perspective as a kind of like you know legacy Japanese publisher that is now mostly focused on publishing um, PC games from uh, Western studios. That was good, but the actual mm. like you know the kind of sting of like oh wow we have actually I, I'm here in front of someone from Sega I can just ask about Yakuza and Persona two things that I know PC gamers really want to see on Steam and um mm. yeah and got an answer that we could use as a news story so you know that that was part of that process um at the same time though 
Uh, going back to something I mentioned earlier, like um, obviously when you meet these sort of legendary figures from game development, um, you personally want to have a good experience, but at the same time, um, that's not the reason you're there. You're there to get the most yeah. interesting answers possible for your readership. So to pull out one example, uh, Yu Suzuki, the creator of Shemu, I interviewed at E3 2019. And I th- it was quite a short interview, but I feel like it was mostly overshadowed by the fact that Shenmue had just been announced as an Epic Games Store exclusive. Mm. And this was right around the time that this was all PC gamers like wanted to read about, was just, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of like people just really interested in... A lot of people were very angry about Epic and the exclusivity, even though it's I kind personally... Of like, it's kind of like hate scrolling, isn't it, on Twitter? It's people love to get... You know, they love to have have more ammunition against this service. Yeah, it's. I kind of get it in a way. Like, um, you just want to buy the game on Steam, play games on people on Steam, fine, whatever. And we saw that with um, Hitman, even though they did make good, um, there was a bit flawed in the execution of how they put Hitman 3 mm. onto um, the Epic Games Store. So I get people's like reservation about it. It's just one of those things where I got a bit sick of hearing about it. And in this yeah, case, for sure. be- because I asked Suzuki about it, like he didn't answer like one of the deep silver people in the room did answer. But I pressed the subject several times. And like... There's a slight part of my brain that's like, I'll probably never meet you, Suzuki, again. This is someone who's like a, a games a games development legend, the designer of Outrun, of Space Harrier, and Shenmue, like a, a legendary figure. He's in his 60s. I will probably never meet him again. And the one time I did, I was asking about a boring storefront. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. So, so I, I had I had this this thought many years ago around E3 where um, like. It almost at one point, and this and this is probably about like ten, yeah, ten years, ten or eight years ago, where it felt like the strategy at E3 was like we're trying to get headline. You know, the thing that matters is like a big headline, and these are the talking points of the day. And it was kind of the era where like every year it seemed the big story that would always explode was it was quite like cod versus battlefield or activision versus ea and all anyone really ever wanted was to get someone from one to slag the other one off or say something a bit like sniffy about the other one at least because mm. that would be like a mega headline mega clicks that's like how you won the internet in that day was to get activision or ea to kind of kick off and it really felt like you know that, you know, as a print person, because I've never worked on a website, like I've never understood that. Like to go in with that attitude, to go in with like, I've got to get a headline. If you get a headline, great, lucky you. But you know, I couldn't waste a question trying to set someone up. You know, it just that that sits uneasy with me. I think. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that that sort of like the hunger for those kind of headlines has really dissipated. People are interested when that stuff happens. Just. um Look at uh, Yosef Fares, the um, creative director of uh, A Way Out and um, Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Was that it? I think that was the other one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, a guy who I think is in a bit of a cycle of like shock value quotes. And if I was him, I would find that incredibly high pressure to keep saying like more and more outrageous things. I'd want to just be left alone. I'd be like, look, I used to say some shit. Now just leave me alone. But he, re- he recently said that if you didn't, if, if you found his new game boring he'd give you a thousand dollars yeah and it's like how how many times can you say that sort of thing before people are just sort of burned out on it or you yourself are just tired of saying it yeah so, yeah but it, was, it was it was more like like we know that there are these angry like sort of sort of hot hot 
potato issues or whatever. So let's hot potato. Is that a phrase? Uh, yeah, hot potato. Yeah. Yeah. So let's try and get everyone to like weigh in on it, whether they're like you know relevant or not. You know, it's it's like. This guy who's making Mario Party, do we really want to ask him like what, how he feels about the EA Activision, you know, rift? You know, mm. like, not really. Do we yeah. really want to ask him about Mario Party? Not really. <laughs> um, I, might having, be the answer. Having worked on a website, I do get it. Like, there is um, a reader value aspect to, you know, giving people the opinion of um, the Yu Suzuki thing. I don't, like, regret asking it because, like I say, professionally, it was the thing to ask about. Yeah, After, sure. Like especially on PC, where is Shenmue interesting to PC players? I would say like it's borderline, really. Um, I would expect most people are going to play that game on consoles. Um, and I don't think many people cared about Shenmue 3 anyway, ultimately. But um, I was just there thinking, ah, well, you know, I had about 15, 20 minutes with um, Yu Suzuki, and I mostly asked about storefronts and a few other questions. And I was there in the back of my mind thinking, uh, I remember being like 16 and having like, um, I left school and had like a 10 week summer where I basically like played Shenmue 2 for all of it. And like that was quite a, you know, I don't think Shenmue is a perfect series and um, and it's kind of, it's very quirky and odd. But I was there thinking, well, you know, if I could, if I'd known then I would one day be able to speak to the creator and, and this is what I asked, like, does that quite add up? And I don't know. I, I don't have a, like an overall thought there. I just wanted to kind yeah, of like, no. talk about my process when I was there. Uh, yeah, know, no, no, that, that, that makes perfect sense. I, get, I just, uh, I mean, yeah, I've never really been in a position where I've had to, you know, my job has been hinging on getting those big trafficking headlines. Like that's never really been my vibe, which I guess I'm sort of lucky for because I think well, I'd be bad at it. Well, it depends on the site. It wasn't like imperative here. It was just like, mm. it was the right thing to ask about. Um, yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, it's quite interesting. But um. Another thing, Matthew, is that uh, developers and publishers will sometimes set up um, roundtable interviews. So it will be you and like one or maybe more um, journalists uh, asking questions, taking it in mm. turns. Well, in theory, taking it in turns. Sometimes it doesn't pan out that way. Um, what do you think the differences are between like roundtables and solo interviews? Um, have you ever enjoyed a roundtable? Um, do you ever get anything out of them? Yeah, I actually quite I quite enjoy a round table because I, I find having other people in the room, I get a little less nervous for, for starters. Like there's pressure is off you. Also, and this is going to sound really smug, if other people are shitting the bed with their questions, you feel like a total pro <laughs> and you're like, you know what? I am better at this. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a terrible thing to say. Um, but... The other thing is, is when you get into a round table and people have like one question and they freeze and then they don't have anything else to ask and you can like sort of dom- dominate the session a bit. Um, not intentionally, just because like they're like anyone else and people are sitting there like sort of dumbfounded and you're like, all right, I'm just going to treat this like a normal interview. I mean, there is that little, you, you do get a little bit sore afterwards when you see everyone else's write ups and you're like, well, those weren't your questions but I, that's the deal in a round table like anything that happens in the room belongs to everyone but you're like i feel like i did a lot of heavy lifting and everyone's benefited um but at the same time the smug part of my brain enjoys knowing that everyone benefited from my good work <laughs> yeah it's interesting because working online i suppose it's more of a race to get you know right the thing up if you're in a round table and there's like i don't know two other major sites there then you want to try and get yours up first um but yeah, I think um, I agree with you. Like, I've I've had good and bad roundtables. So, I had a good roundtable in 2015. Um, the first time they were remaking Final Fantasy VII, I don't even remember. They kind of rebooted it halfway through development. Um, it was CyberConnect, the developer, making it, and then um, Square Enix took over and made it in-house. Obviously, the game is out now. 
But um, interviewed uh, Tetsuya Nomura for that, the uh, director, and um, obviously, like, you know, a massive figure in Final Fantasy. So, you know, it would have been very um, surprising to get a one-on-one with um, that kind of developer. But that was quite a good roundtable because everyone just wanted to ask about Final Fantasy VII Remake, and this was the first time they were properly talking about it. So right. um, everyone was asking, like, there were no, like, headline sort of, um, answers from it but there was loads of good information about oh you know you're using Final Fantasy 7 Advent Children as a reference point and um, how are you going to redesign Midgar and all this stuff and uh, yeah that was that was good um, however I have also had like really weird roundtables so when I worked on Sci-Fi Now uh, the film TV magazine in hmm. 2011 for Prometheus or 2012 it was I interviewed Michael Fassbender with oh, nice. about eight other journalists and I could tell they were all from completely different like types of publication because no one else was asking about the film Prometheus. Um, there was like one sort of like v- almost elderly, I want to say like French kind of like critic or writer who asked him, "What's your favorite cocktail?" and "What do you like <laughs> to do on weekends?" and then and then I was like having to like force my way into the conversation, um, you know, going, "What's it like to play an android for Ridley Scott or whatever?" <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's a bit weird. <laughs> it's good in a way because there's no chance they would ever use the same answers as you. But also, like, um, it, it felt like I had very few answers from Fastbender to actually use in my cover feature, you know? Um, yeah, it kind of happens that way. Yeah. Yeah I, 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 yeah, I do generally enjoy them. I've been in a few where, like, someone, like, goes in hard and it's always quite interesting to see how like the room deals with it like you basically get someone who's like well i only get to ask one question so i'm going to be like you know i'm going to ask something like controversial or i'm going to like you know they're either going for the headline or they have a genuine a genuine thing and it's it that that's that's a quite a unique energy I'm, i've been in a few interviews with um you won't mind me telling you this uh rich stanton where like Obviously, back when he was writing for Edge, you know, they'd basically ask whatever they needed to ask, really. And I remember being at Nintendo of Europe when they were interviewing... Um, it was like the WiiWare announcement, mm. and they were they were showing off all the, like, the first round of like WiiWare games. I remember Rich being quite fierce on um, the quality of the games and also the ridiculous... Um, size of the memory on the on the you know the hard drive on the Wii could store like 10 of these games or whatever and he kind of put that to the the head of like Nintendo of Europe or the head of marketing Nintendo of Europe which mm. is where he dismissively said um oh the only people who care about that are like geeks and otakus and then <laughs> that went that when that quote then you know did the rounds and that was quite a big story because it was like Nintendo of really dismissing this this genuine concern or whatever and I remember thinking like everyone dining out on this quote which was 100% like didn't come from them in fact I remember being in the room and you see people people get quite nervous when someone is like that in a round table you see people are like embarrassed and it's like well you're all happy to dine out on the fucking headline that he got so let's have some respect for the man who asked the question rather than being like oh geez this guy and it's like yeah you want the spice though so you know Mm. which is it to be Mm, I've not actually really been in that scenario where someone's asked. Yeah, like, a it's, it's a weird. Like I, it's just a personal thing because, like, I can remember once being like seeing like another journalist like literally roll their eyes and then like a couple of days later use the quote, and it's like, well, what, what's it to be? Mm. You know, like 
Ah, but I, I, like I say, a, 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 probably probably a, 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 pers- a personal bugbear of mine. <laughs> yeah. So something else I want to talk about, Matthew, is that um, I feel like the way interviews are, are generated from publishers, you never really get an idea of how what the culture of a tri- AAA development studio is like. This is something I feel like is always at arm's length um, and beyond mm. your reach as a you know working in games media. And so, um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about reporting and uh, investigative reporting um, in a little bit. But I was wondering how you felt about that. Like, um, publishers have their reasons for wanting to manage interviews. But like you say, sometimes people are super media trained. I interviewed one developer of a, an open world game at an E3 where I asked a question. And before I finished the answer, he started talking. And I was there thinking, right, OK, so he's so heavily media trained that He's like he's almost like psychically locking on to these are the key talking points. We go in, we do this, and then we kind of move yeah. on. Yeah. Um, and so publishers have their reasons for managing that. Like there's been, you know, a few like big uh, sort of snafus over the years. The um, famous one about um, women being too hard to animate. Um, yeah. That was obviously like a, a bit of a disaster. Um, but um, in my experience, you're unlikely to ever learn that much about how game development actually works. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I I think yeah that that is fair. Um, but then it's again it's based on the situation, you know. Like at E three, you know, they're there to sort of announce the game, and you know they're showing off a game for the first time. And in their head, they're like in the interviews, like my job here is to show the game off for the first time. Like mm-hmm. often, like uh, you'll be in with a developer, and they'll be like, "Oh, did you see like the announcement, or did you see the trailer?" And it's like, "Yeah, of course." Like, of course I saw it. Like, I'm here. Like, we can skip all that. It's almost like you're trying to skip further ahead than they're happy to go, is is, is often the relationship I find. Mm. You know, they're there with a, you know... They're not there, like, on top of the announcement. They're there as, like, an alternative to the announcement. It's like, I can tell you everything the announcement told you. Like, I can... That is literally my job, is to do exactly the same thing as that trailer, where you're like, well, I'm already ahead of that. Like, I, I want to I wanna jump to something we don't know about. And that's where you probably collide is because you're like yeah i've got my head around all this already so let's 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 jump to the next bit and they're just not in a space to talk about that or go over to that place Hmm. um seems to be emerging thing so like i find generally in those situations and it's pretty obvious quickly in an interview if if someone's kind of in that mode that like I'm not necessarily trying to like pump them for like new information or beyond what they can talk about. You're just trying to get them to say like anything sort of human or interesting sounding, even if it's not like 100% like cutting edge or relevant or new about the game. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to take them sideways on the topic rather than forwards, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So it's like okay, or like the Mass Effect thing. Like, you know, I talked a few issues ago about when we did the Mass Effect cover. That was like a perfect example. Like, I got this interview. They weren't really willing to talk about Mass Effect Andromeda at all. So you were like, okay, let's try and get a feel for, like, where this game's coming from as, like, sci-fi fans. Or is it going to tap into this? So we talked a lot about, like, the right stuff and astronauts and space programs instead. You know, it's like, let's get... Because they're... And then they open up. And maybe if they open up they accidentally slip in something more telling than they hoped they were going to. You know, you're not trying to trick them up, but you're putting them in a space where maybe those things can happen. I feel like that's more valuable. I think, like, one of the more sort of um, critical kind of, like, interviews or previews I did at um, E3, at an E3, was 
for Marvel's Avengers, where I think I did ask some quite searching questions about like, well, how does the multiplayer in this work? How can you, how does it make sense to you to um, have like to add new characters like every few months for no extra charge and stuff like that? Mm. And um, the Avengers game sounded too good to be true and obviously didn't make a very good first impression and the game's been a bit of a flop. So um, my instincts were kind of right there. I didn't get anything super juicy, but I got enough to be like, oh, I've kind of, the doubts I had, I feel like I've, I don't know, I've justified them slightly more by hearing some fairly vague answers on how this stuff might work. So, yeah, yeah I agree. It's that sideways space you want to kind of, like, um, probe. I remember your write-up from... I'm pretty sure this was your write-up of Watch Dogs Legions. Yeah. Where you asked Clint Hawkins some pretty good stuff about the like the, 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 the NPC, kind of any hero, any character kind of system which I think kind of opened that game up way more than the actual demo had. Yeah, I think... Um, so obviously, like, the, the game ended up getting mixed reviews, and I was very effusive with praise about it. But I did ask some quite searching questions about, like, um, if you put a guy in hospital, um, like an NPC, but then you pay his, like, hospital bills for him, which you can do in the game, will his impression of uh, you change? And will his family's impression of a dead sec change as a result? And, like... Mm. I asked about that kind of stuff because, again, that's something where you're not going to get a super juicy headline quote, but um, these are the kind of like questions I had of like, oh, well, how far does this simulation go? So, um, yeah, yeah that, that was that was good. Yeah, that's that that's the kind of stuff I find like valuable because you're like every website on the planet is going to have a preview of this, but if you have the preview that actually explains it or opens it up, I mean, the really frustrating thing is when you have got that and still online, like you see on forums, people are like, "Oh, this doesn't sound good. It doesn't work like this," and you're like, "Well, actually, if you'd read our thing, you'd know it does." Or like, "I have explained this." Or when they then later announce something which you'd had like six months before, and everyone's like, "Whoa, that's amazing," and you're like, "Man." Like, if you actually read, like, a good interviewer, you would have known this before now. Like, it, 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 it kind of bugs me that you can kind of get ahead and that art is not always um, appreciated. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, Matthew, when developers go indie, I generally find that you get slightly better answers from them because they kind of want to tout the fact that they um, used to work on, like, I don't know, when um, I remember when Kickstarter was becoming a thing, a lot of like games by people who worked on Bioshock were like around, um, and people are a bit more open to talking about the stuff they worked on. A little bit like how you said earlier about the um, uh, oral history kind of phenomenon that sort of mm. sprung up in the last few years. Um, have you found that to be the case too? That indie developers, without having the kind of like PR and marketing machine sort of behind them, are just a bit more open about how things work. Yeah, definitely. Not not a huge amount of like first-hand experience necessarily like in terms of like the actual kind of indie stuff that i've really dug into really hasn't hasn't been that much um but like in conversation at events for sure you you get that you get that vibe people are very open like i love walking you know egx expo or or, um rest and talking to people and how open they are and and um, a lot of them, like you say, yeah, they've worked on things. Sometimes they're even people you've you've interviewed before when they were in in like the big sort of studio system, and you see how different they are as people. That's that's, that's quite funny. Um, I had a really good uh, studio visit to Three Fields Entertainment, which is the the kind of core of the Burnout team from Criterion. Mm. Um, set up, they did Dangerous Golf and um, oh, the thing that was like Burnout dangerous driving things like that um 
And, you know, Alex Ward, I think, has always been quite good value for money in an interview. Like, even back when they were doing burnout in the kind of Criterion heyday, you know, he was quite an outspoken kind of chap and quite good fun in interviews. Um, but this was just, yeah, like, talking to there. And it's it's really interesting combination of, like, the incredible, like, polish and confidence of someone who's come from, like, AAA gaming but with the absolutely like no no leash of like PR or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. the heads heads up his new little indie studio can say whatever he likes. It's quite a potent combination. Like the quotes are like all amazing, and everything he says is really good value for money, really good fun. Um, so that that kind of stuff worked out quite well. But I haven't I haven't interviewed a lot of like very small sort of in, indie people just just because of the things I've worked on. I guess. What about yeah. you? Yeah, I've I've interviewed a few like. Um... I've enjoyed speaking to um, Jordan Thomas, who used to work on, um, who was the creative director of Bioshock 2. Oh, yeah. And uh, made the Blackout Club an indie game, um, as well as another indie game that. Magic I've, Circle. Yes, Magic Circle, yeah. Really cool. Um, sort of like a game about uh, programming, reprogramming enemies to fight for you. That was a, yeah. that was a really cool little, cool little game on, uh, on Steam that people should check out. Um, that was cool. He's a really good talker. I actually interviewed him when he was working on Bioshock 2, and he was a good talker then as well, but like. Um, getting to ask about you know about these kind of like older games and how they inform these newer games that's quite a cool thing when developers go um indie i was curious matthew if you had any thoughts on these developers who have reputations for being big talkers but it's kind of all talk yeah it's it, again it's, it's a tricky one because like the the period when you're talking to them which is like the hype thing you know there's a lot of good faith and everyone kind of goes along with it and what they say sounds so exciting and good on the page. I mean, it makes for great copy and, 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 you know, fundamentally it's their decision whether to kind of put those expectations in place and you kind of, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword a little bit with them. You know, the, the, the backlash to, to a few of these cases, I, I wonder if, if that sort of now sort of scared people off or if people will be a bit more careful with that. And mm. yeah, I've, it's weird. I've, I've, I've interviewed a few people where, the game that, that that I've really bought into the game or I've bought into the idea of the game because I'm very confident in them as a person because of their confidence. Hmm. You know, they talk a good game and you're like, yeah, this person, like, they've got a really good idea. Because sometimes you talk to someone and they're so unenthusiastic about the game that they're working on. You're like, oh, man, this game's going to suck. Like, I can just tell if this is, like, if this is the, the manifestation of this person, this game in human form... Um, this is going to blow. But then at the same time, I have fallen for it before where I've talked to people and been like, this is going to be the best game ever made. Like, this person really gets it. Like, I remember interviewing... Um, and I don't... <laughs> I should preface this by saying I don't think this game is the worst game ever made. I'm actually a bit more fond of it um, than other people. But interviewing the producer of uh, Lords of Shadow, Dave Cox, about Lords of Shadow, the, the 3DS game. It was all right, and, that game. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, the 3DS game's good. I I actually I really really rate uh, Mirror Fate. Um, but in the interview, he was also doing interviews for for Lord of Shadow Two at the time, which is the one people were quite down on. But I quite liked. But he kept talking about that in our 3DS interview, and he was so it was like in my head, I was like, oh, he's so excited about Lord of Shadow Two, he can't stop talking about it. Like this is great. Like this mm. game's gonna be brilliant because I loved Lord of Shadow One. Uh, and Lord of Shadow 2 was what it was, and I was a little bit like, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. But he was a great, like, 
a great salesman for that game. Like I, I thought, oh, this is just going to be absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And in the room, it's fun. Reading it on the page, it's fun. It only becomes not fun, like in hindsight, once the game's out. And at that point, I wonder, does anyone go back and be like, "Fuck that interview," you know? Uh, unless it's really big and egregious, like I don't. Can you get cross that someone just sold you like a big, exciting thing and it wasn't quite as good? I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't. Know. I, I kind of get that they're trying to sell the thing they're making, and like you know, there are all kinds of reasons why a game might not end up. Um, the way the exact way that people want it these are that's a nicely um a nicely documented phenomenon now in the industry like people know that like um you know if you've kind of overscoped your game and then you have to cut stuff out then you know it, it looks bad in hindsight and i don't know I, I suppose like when you do it over and over again people are going to be sort of critical of it generally everything's fine and on the level but there'll be like there's going to be a moment like an hour and a half into this game where I'm going to put you in front of like the hardest decision you've ever had to make in a video game, and you are going to sit there, and if I've done my job, you are not going to be able to like move. You will not know what to do because of this thing. And I've had the promise of, like, there's this one thing I'm not telling you about that's going to blow your mind. I've heard that so many times, and then when I play the game, I'm really hyper-aware of, like, what is the thing? I'm going to wait for this thing. I'm really looking for this thing. And it never comes. And I always think, oh, man, I fell for it again. You know, it's like, fool me once, shame on me. No, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> fool me twice, except I've been fooled, like, 15 times. And every time I'm like, wow, that sounds great. Um, but it's just such a hollow thing because you don't have to commit to it. You're like, there's something amazing, but I can't tell you what it is. And you're like, wow, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Matthew, I was curious if you thought there was any sort of antagonism in any kind of loose way between like um, games media writers and developers. So late last year, there was a headline on Pace magazine about Cyberpunk 2077 that I think a lot of people sort of criticised and agreed was, um, you know, a bit of a misfire. Um, and then developers responded and then quite a lot of people were putting the boot in and i think it exposed a little bit of like frustration that maybe developers have against um certain types of like games headlines or approaches to writing about games what do you what do you sort of make of all that yeah i i think that does exist to an extent i i think it flares up at certain points like if there are certain i think there are certain periods where there are a few more hot potatoes which we've already agreed is an accepted term um that it gets wearying um like i you know that that period i was talking about where like at e3 there was this idea of like we're basically trying to pump people for controversy it felt like that was like a more antagonistic period on both sides and it actually culminated in like you hear you actually do hear stories occasionally of like press events where someone would say like i'm not talking to x outlet because they had such a bad rep for like doing that um and that you know that's about as bad as it can get i'd say it's like when you've got to the point of like someone literally won't talk to you or you've been outright blacklisted um that that's a shit that's obviously a sign that things have kind of soured too much um yeah it's it's tricky as a reader like sometimes you feel like this story is being pumped too much or like i personally am sick of this story and i can really understand and appreciate people from the other side feeling that way too um i would say i don't think it's ever personal 
but um you know i don't think anyone gleefully is trying to pump these things it's just this simple game of hits isn't it um but i yeah but like i said i've having not really worked on a site i don't think i i that that that's more of a website issue i'd say like that was never really true of print we were just too kind of unimportant to ever really upset anyone i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i've never been like um i've never sensed uh, a developer is like refuse to talk to me or anything like that that's not happened but i um i do wonder if there's a slight element of like um not necessarily elitism but a bit of tension in the fact that like being a games developer requires a very obvious set of skills like um you or i couldn't turn up um to i don't know just picking an example out of nowhere rare for example and be like lead programmers but if mm. um you know if someone from rare wanted to write an op-ed about a video game they could probably do it so oh yeah that's not to say that like there's no skill in games writing there absolutely is but um i think there's a slight element of like i don't know if you kind of if you're at the core of a game's development, you know how it works, and then you see people making calls that you think sound stupid for, like, um, you know, for traffic or whatever it might be, then I can see where the frustration comes from. But the thing I would add to that is that I think that AAA games development is very closed off. It's very, very, like, people don't really want to teach you how they make things. Like, um, you're told it's hard and stuff like that, but, you know, the reason the reason reporting has sort of been, you know, rising... Um, in importance over the past few years is because they're telling these stories about AAA games development that the previously existing system didn't get out there. So people want to learn about, you know, about games development. People want to know how this stuff works. But the um, the first instinct from the other side is not to necessarily tell that story. Like, that's not mm. always the case. You know, there was um, quite a long uh, documentary about the making of God of War that was very honest about how the game was made. That was really cool. Um, but generally speaking, I think there could be a little bit more done in terms of like educating people about how these games are made. Um, so yeah, that's that's the thought I have. It's weird because having like off the record conversations, like more socially at events with people, which you know you do have, and you know been at things where you get into a group and there are a group of developers and they're chatting and sharing stories, and there's just like an agreement that you're not just going to go and tell all this stuff to anyone else. Um, and you hear of like like generally like. You know, the, I, I think it's generally accepted that it's kind of a minor miracle that, like, any game happens. Like, it's just, like, chaos for so much of it. And, you know, so much can go wrong, and it's such a complicated thing. And there, there's a really good decision behind, like, every feature, whether you think it's good or bad. There's a very clear story of how that thing came to be. And, you know, I think fundamentally people just don't want to open themselves up to, like, you know the reality of this is it's it's really really messy and like not not like a glorious story you know the what are our stuff actually is you know everything's quite cute everything's a cute anecdote there's never any frustration in those stories it's like this thing happened everything was like a fun happy accident and and that's how they kind of want to present themselves so i i can understand like based on the, the little bits and bobs that you hear why people wouldn't necessarily want those versions of stories out there yeah because they don't always look great <laughs> as a result yeah it's not their obligation to like reveal how this sausage gets made but it's that thing where i feel like if there's a, there is any kind of like frustration when these sort of headlines do the rounds um i think a lot of that can be like might be alleviated by just educating people more widely about the realities of how games get made um, yeah yeah I, th- I think also recently like you've got a the the thing which is I imagine is more frustrating is 
kind of social media dunking where people just take something that's dumb or looks dumb and just makes a big thing of it and then there is like an answer like recently there was that clip doing the rounds of the weird jump cut scene in outriders and everyone's like ha, 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 look at this cut scene what a duff thing mm. and they're like oh it's a loading transition to bring your party together and like there is an answer for it but people are so quick to try and be sort of smart asses online that's yeah. probably frustrating like particularly in the age of social media which i don't think is that doesn't really count as like actual you know that's not professional journalism that's people's like private you know ha- you know how they want to conduct themselves online but that that would piss me off i see lots of stuff where i think well that person's just an asshole doesn't know how this thing works like but hey sure it gets you a laugh on twitter so whatever but that's not journalism so i don't know if it counts no it's an interesting um talking point though again like it's again speaks to the lack of understanding though like you say like um you know it, people got to learn off the back of that that um you know that that is uh like you say hiding a kind of loading screen transition so it's it's a, it's important that it's there and the lesson yeah. does get taught but ultimately the the kind of like the um uh, the power of the lol overshadows the actual information behind it so um, yeah that's that's not healthy there was so much of that around cyberpunk for every tweet i saw of someone saying like look at this thing there would be inevitably a reply from someone at a different studio who's like oh yeah that technique's called this all games do it you know yeah or like yes everyone's been doing we've been doing this for 15 years you know you don't know what you're talking about so I, I guess it's just a, f- a further reason we, we shouldn't really heed anything on Twitter, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to talk about, though, because, yeah, I think it kind of works on both sides, where it's like you you would rather have more understanding from a gaming audience, but at the same time, yeah, there's a lot of, like, very close-to-the-chest uh, elements to game development. And I don't think that was always the case in the dynamic between um, uh, press and um, and developers. So... When yeah. the um the game uh sorry when Netflix released Bandersnatch the Black Mirror special I ended up reading an old like I don't remember which magazine it was like a Crash or Zap era magazine about Bandersnatch was the name of a doomed project from a UK game developer I think the name of the um, Black Mirror special was like a reference to that and it was right. this very in depth feature with like loads of like really good off the record like conversation from developers about it. And I was there thinking, by the time I got into games magazines, this the apparatus of PR, because games was such a big business, existed in like such a way that I never really developed those kinds of relationships or had that kind of dynamic with developers. But yeah, you working on them, um, you coming into Endgamer, for example, it sounds like they had quite close ties in the NGC and N64 days with Rare, for example, that you yeah. wouldn't see access elsewhere. And um, that does feel like something that's changed over time. As the business of games has grown, that kind of like wall has kind of like you know become more of a thing do you think that's the case yeah definitely like i I don't know as many examples of 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 people being too close i don't it's a it's a really weird one because i've i've like i don't have many very close personal relationships with any developers i'd say same and in my head i've always kind of treated that as like a separation of church and state but i don't know if actually that's just my way of justifying not having any developer friends because <laughs> like, I just haven't been able to make any, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's easy to go like, well, I believe in separation of church and state. And actually, I'd be saying something different if I went to like GDC and made friends with everyone. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a tricky one. Um, uh, the first time um, Tom Francis invited me to his house, I thought, I can't write about heat signature anymore. I've been to his house. <laughs> um 
Yeah, it happens. I don't have like many close developer friends. In fact, I find it very funny when this has happened a few times that a prominent developer follows me on Twitter. I think they're thinking, oh, it's the UK editor-in-chief of PC Gamer. This guy, I bet he's got some great things to say. And then there's me saying, oh, Thor the Dark World's fucking shit. And then like I've kind of been unfollowed within about like three months. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> I've got nothing but the greatest of respect for people who unfollow me on Twitter. Um <laughs> I always it really I, I always worry on Twitter that like sometimes I'll interact with someone and like tweet at them and it'll be an uncharacteris an uncharacteristically like sophisticated tweet from me and then they'll follow me on the strength of me that tweet at them and then they realise that the rest of my tweets are just about Rennies and I I always feel like oh don't secretly I'm like don't follow me like that it that isn't true of all my tweets I'm not normally that good at tweeting. <laughs> Uh, like if an author follows me because I say something interesting about their book to them and then every other tweet I've got is about me like you know I just sprayed Pepsi Max all over my face or whatever and I'm like great <laughs> I think I'm a real idiot yeah it's funny because the Batman writer um, Scott Snyder follows me on Twitter and I'm like waiting for the day where he's like finally had enough of like my inane bullshit about like oh, he's tweeting about a gun he's got in Destiny again and then just unfollows. I'm sort of like counting it down. Like, any day now, Scott, you'll be gone. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe he's just got you muted. The, yeah, exactly. That's like, you know... The... Which is worse. I'd hate, to, I'd hate to know that I was in someone's... I'd rather be unfollowed than held forever in, like, mute limbo. Oh, <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, this is the kind of insight that people really wanted. It's how we feel <laughs> yeah, about them. People are like, finally, something interesting. <laughs> Um, Matthew, so the last thing I wanted to ask about before we move on to um, name dropping and lots of um, anecdotes about us kind of like tooling around in the noughties is um, reporting. Um, I've seen people do it, though, who I've worked with, um, but investigative reporting, um, uh, most kind of notably Jason Schreier, who worked for Kotaku and now works for Bloomberg, obviously an extremely talented reporter, um, has developed some really strong contacts and has revealed loads about AAA games development that um people wouldn't have previously known um but reporting is kind of found everywhere in games media now um i used to work with steven messner on pc gamer and he was very good at kind of reporting the machinations of like um you know there's different i don't know syndicates or whatever they're called in like eve the trading companies right. or um you know like the what's going on inside the final fantasy 14 online uh, fan community and stuff like that so yeah. i was curious what you kind of made of that the rise of reporting in um in games media and how important it is yeah i it's it's admirable it's also something i am not good at and personally don't have any interest in like i like i'll read it all quite happily but i i personally have no interest in in writing that stuff myself you know i feel like the the where i came from in terms of magazines and gamer what like re- is really the exact opposite of that like it Endgamer's philosophy is like games are just stupid fun things let's just have a great stupid fun time with games and maybe that's not sophisticated enough for people you know maybe that's seen as cowardly for not engaging with things but tonally I've never really been able to marry the two things you sort of one one or the other and I don't think that should be too controversial you know, uh, you know I, I read a lot of other arts writing and people there are just arts critics you know they just review things they maybe have opinions they can do opinion columns or whatever but it's not like the film critics from the guardian are are like uncovering the kind of the the harvey weinstein stories or whatever you know that's that's left to other journalists it's it feels in a way that 
like weirdly this happens more in games than it does any other area of like cultural reporting there's this sort of i don't know if it's just our desperate desire to be taken seriously that we we need to have serious you know reporting associated with with the art form but it's not my strength um that isn't to say i don't care about those issues you know i i read about them and uh you know i've just i've I've never yeah i've just never really been able to sort of uh i don't know sort of work out an end to that which sits alongside how i you know feel about more light-hearted games writing just a fence sitter to the end i guess yeah i think um this kind of varies uh, generally but i've like you i have loads of admiration for it and i've really enjoyed being able to learn about how like rockstar or people within rockstar feel about the game the development of uh, red dead redemption 2 and what that sort of took to make or what went wrong with anthem that sort of stuff like i do think that stuff is genuinely illuminating and when it breaks i'm like i automatically want to read it so i think it's it's got loads of value um like you say though i think that it's okay to have different um specialities within games media like if you're a critic Mm. and that's what you want to write about that's fine and that kind of you know broadly describes you and me i would say um Mm. and that's very much the kind of um the mindset that magazines put you in and you do end up using reporting skills when you're doing stuff like uh you know the making of x game or you're commissioning the you know yeah. the history of iron storm and things yeah, like storytelling is the same exactly yeah so there's like definitely crossover like um it's also interesting that i think that the gaming's dynamic is a bit different with this because reporting in film media from what I can tell, a lot of the stories you'll see break on like industry outlets feel like they've been set up by the film studio in question or someone's agent or someone's publicist. Yeah. Like X has been cast in this, and it's like, well, the only reason that would be news is because uh, probably someone at like one of these big Hollywood talent agencies wants them their client to be on the front page of Deadline or whatever. So mm. um, that's quite that sort of thing um, exists more in the form of like cover exclusives in. Um, in uh, gaming but where it's very ob- it's more obvious where the access comes from yeah I, I, you know and the the and the other the other side of this i guess is like you know you've got the kind of the big expose but then you've also got the the kind of leak stuff like i'm going to tell you something before other people have it mm-hmm. um which like i'm just not i'm not very interested in it i don't really respect that it's like so what you know someone who tells you something early like is that's going to be meaningless that's that's only exciting for the time being and then it's it's dead in a few months like games are only interesting when you've got them in your hands and you can actually say something interesting about them you know if all your work exists just in that hype early hype cycle you know fundamentally it's it's going to be redundant one day um i you know i've I've not got a lot of time for that but that's not really to do with interviews because it's also anonymous and sort of hidden i guess that it's it's not really the same thing hmm. um yeah yeah maybe, maybe we'll try and get a game developer on the uh, on a podcast at some point and talk about this stuff a little bit that might be interesting like what i'd love to, to actually know how um you know everyone's like they're so media trained i wonder actually how that happens like do mm. they sit in a room and they're just like you know it's like being prepared for a, giving a testimony in a court case they've just got a pr sitting there going like what's the best gun <laughs> they're like they have to bark out the answer <laughs> Yeah, I think it's um, it's much more widespread than um, you or I probably realise it is. Because that's, again, another thing that we don't really get taught about. But I would imagine that that's like, institutionalised across quite a lot of major publishers. But yeah, 
nonetheless, Matthew, I feel like that's a good kind of preamble to our next section. Is there anything else you wanted to cover, just in the kind of like basics? Oh, I'm of- sure some of the bits, Bobs, will come up in our interview specifics. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to take a short break, then we'll come back with um, stories of our own interviews uh, from hell. Not really from hell, but um, some interesting challenges we faced in performing interviews and some anecdotes that we hope you'll find quite interesting. It's not as catchy a title, is it? Matthew, welcome back to the past, where we're going to talk Ooh. about some game developer interviews. How does it feel oh, to be I back love, here? I love, I love being in the past. I was so much skinnier. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, so, Matthew, we've got like five interview experiences each to discuss here. In much the same way we normally do, we'll alternate um, telling little different stories about um, people we've interviewed. Did you want to kick off with yours, your first one? Yeah, um, so this was... This this started as an interview from hell and then quickly became an interview from heaven. In fact, one of the better interviews I've done. Um, uh, this was for Dragon Quest Nine. Um, I very luckily got to do a, a trip over um, to Tokyo to meet Yuji Horii and Koichi Sugiyama, who's the composer of Dragon Quest series. Um, and this wasn't even for Endgamer. I was on Endgamer. This was actually for official Nintendo magazine. They were on a deadline and couldn't send any of their team. So they rang us up and were like, does one of you a lot want to go to Tokyo to see Dragon Quest? And I was like, yes, of course. Um, uh, I always felt a bit bad for Chris Scullion on this on this ground because I felt like I stole an absolutely prime Starfighter trip. <laughs> um, but at the same time, basically from when they announced the trip, the, at the, uh, you know, the creative Dragon Quest pretty big deal in terms of like interviews and this was easily the biggest person i'd interviewed at that point and i think the nerves kicked in like instantly of like oh i better not mess that up you know i'm gonna have to really deliver on this and i knew dragon quest like reasonably well i wasn't like a mega fan or anything Mm. and so i just really didn't want to be exposed um and i find that of all the things that we do in our jobs it's interviews like hang over me more than anything else i don't know if you have that too like if like particularly when you're on a press trip and you're like i know somewhere in these five days i've got to do this interview i think i've you know i need to get the interview out before i can like properly chill and enjoy myself Mm. um my personal feeling is that it's worse when you're doing an interview on the phone from home like um the stress of waiting for the phone to ring or dialing in and waiting for someone to join the kind of group call like I find that much worse than in person. In person, I'm much oh, more okay. relaxed. Um, maybe that's just me, though. Yeah, I always used to um, be amazed by the, the the people they were talking to on the phone on Total Film. When I was working on official Nintendo in the future London offices, we sat on the same floor as Total Film, and obviously, you know, the people they're interviewing are like mega film stars and often because of the time difference they'd be doing in the evening so you know you'd be staying off to work to like sign some pages out or whatever and i'd hear like one of total film pick up their phone and just from what they were saying you'd be able to work out like oh my god they're talking to like samuel jackson you know because they'd ask the question like you know or, or you know what was it like, you know, fighting Henry Cavill in freaking Mission Impossible or something? And you'd be like, oh, my God, it's Tom Cruise. Like, somewhere in this room, if I said something, if I shouted something now, Tom Cruise would hear it. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, if I just shouted my name. <laughs> um, might be a bit weird, though. Um, 
yeah, so I had I had this this hanging over me, and the day the day we actually went to do the interview, there were loads of people on the trip because it was like a big Nintendo of Europe thing. There were probably like twenty different journalists on it, and I was quite late in the day, and having to sit in this tiny, bleak little room in Square Enix sort of Tokyo offices waiting for this interview. So I was very very nervous. I was like, oh god, I'm going to be seen as like a complete fraud. Um, I think that was the first. Was it no? Was it, no, it wasn't the first Japanese developers i'd interviewed in person but i was just i was just hyper aware of not wanting to mess it up but i remember when the really bad bit was when i went into the room there were so many pr handlers in the room as in there was so the setup of the room there was yuji hori kuchi sigiyama and the and the producer of dragon quest 9 from level 5 whose name i can't remember i'm afraid they were sitting in a row of three then in the middle of the room, there was two chairs for me and the translator. And then down two walls of the room, there were PRs. So there were 15 other people in the room. And I remember thinking, oh, shit, I've got to ask all my nervous, bad questions in front of all these people. And they were all looking at me. And it felt, like, very performative. I was very... So, like, I remember just going into a room and my stomach just tightening of this feeling of, like... Why are all these people here? Why are they all watching me? Because there are so many stakeholders in Dragon Quest hmm. um, from Nintendo, from Square, from whoever. Um, yeah, that was just terrible. But what made it all better was the moment I sat down, I realised that um, <laughs> between the the between Yuji Hori and Sugiyama, there was an ashtray, and it was just piled with cigarettes and ash and the room stank of cigarettes i mean they'd just been in there smoking all day and there's just so many cigarettes in this pile i couldn't be nervous like i was instantly like oh it's just these two old guys smoking loads of cigarettes and they smoked all through the interview it really put me at ease it was so casual um and we had a really great chat which isn't always guaranteed with like famous game developers Hmm. Like, you never know if they're going to, you know, some of them really deliver and they're everything you want them to be. And some are a little frosty or, or like, sometimes, uh, one of the ones I'll get to later, you can get people who you feel like maybe their, like, golden days are behind them a bit and there's a bit of, like, resentment there or they don't like being asked about their older games. You know, they're a little bit like, you know, don't remind me kind of thing. Um, but because, like, Yuji Hori's basically just been doing Dragon Quest for 25 years, he's, like, super chill, really into it. Sugiyama, who's eight, who was 80 when I interviewed him, I think, was so charming and nice, and it's a bit odd. He's a bit of a controversial figure, because he's, like, quite a... He's quite, like, a like ultra-conservative. Right. He sort of denies Japanese war crimes. <laughs> um, like, he's quite, on paper, not the best dude. Right. But in person, like, super nice... They really, really engaged with the questions. Um, it helped that I had an absolutely amazing translator, which really makes all the difference in Japanese uh, developer interviews. Because sometimes you could just tell that, like, a de- sometimes you can tell that a translator is just stepping on all the answers, um, or like the enthusiasm with, with the, which the developer speaks. None of it comes through in the color of the language that the translator gives you. Mm. Um, I actually know some journalists who like record their interview and get them retranslated later just because of those situations 
I've never done that. I've never had the budget for that. Uh, <laughs> but this particular one was gold. Like they, everything they said was great. It was it was really good. The, the the cigarettes thing really stuck with me. It was just so like it was like talking to like two granddads. It was really nice. Mm. Um, and it kind of annoyed me a bit that I had to put this amazing interview in official Nintendo because <laughs> I was working in Gamer at the time. I was like, man, I really knocked it out of the park with that. Um, and they were like thrilled. I remember Neil on O&M being like, this was so great. We really loved this feature. And I was just like, God damn it. You know, I felt like I'd really like helped the enemy. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, that was like a, a weird one, but I still get nervous about like, I need to get the interview out of the way always. Like it, otherwise it's just there. It's there as like a, you know, this could be amazing or it could be shit. And in, until I've done it and I, and I know for sure, that the the risk of it being shit will just kind of you know, kind of clog me up a bit. Yeah, that's a no, that's a great story. Um, I will say actually, the one time ever that I missed an interview at E3 or Gamescom was with Yuji Hori. Um, <laughs> it was on a day at Gamescom 2018 where I had zero hours and zero minutes of sleep. Like um, and like um. I remember I got my hours wrong and I was like, I basically turned up at the end of my interview slot for my interview. Um, and I felt really bad that I'd wasted an hour of Yuji Hori's life. Like, um, you know, <laughs> that's uh, that's the only time that's ever happened. But um, I went well, like to you a... said wasted an hour of his life, not his time. Like he's only got like limited <laughs> life left. <laughs> well, it's more just like, I don't know, if you're the creator of Dragon Quest and some guy you've never met from PC Gamer just like uh, waste an hour of your time, I wouldn't be delighted. I'd be like, do you know who the fuck I am? That's how I'd feel about it if I was in his position. Yeah. I've generally found though, like, uh, like some, some of the best Japanese interviews I've had, they've largely been Square Enix people. I find yeah. Square Enix people, like whether it's how they train them or like they've got particularly good translators, but for Japanese developers, I've, I've had some really like good chats, very charismatic people. Yeah, all of my Square Enix ones have been good actually. Um, the Final Fantasy fourteen guy uh, Yoshida, he's really good. Um, it mm. definitely is. It definitely is a thing. Should I kick off with one of mine, Matthew? Yeah, go on. Okay, so um, 2008, I interviewed Hideo Kojima, the creator of Metal Gear Solid, and um, what's the other one? Penguin Adventure. Um, <laughs> of course. And uh, obviously, like Death Stranding and stuff. So, um, yeah. Penguin like... Adventure 2, when? Was your first question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that was it, was, a, it was a roundtable interview. It was at the Metal Gear Solid 4 review event I talked about in the Game Review Scores We Got Wrong episode. So, Kojima was in this like giant two-story hotel room in this hotel um his translator aki saito was there who i think was also like some kind of konami exec um and it was off the it was right at the very end of this review event and um they were running late so went in there um one journalist of the three who was meant to be in the round table um, missed the slot because i think they had to like get a get a, like an early flight back or something like that so it's just me and one of the person with Kojima and I was there thinking well that's bonanza you know the other journalists incidentally uh had like a camera and was hoping to record them I think Kojima had a cold and so they wouldn't um they wouldn't let them uh, film and so I think like put his camera facing the wall and I might be misremembering this but I think he slowly tilted his camera back towards Kojima like <laughs> slowly during the interview um maybe just to pick up the audio but I like the idea of well I'll film you in secret then um <laughs> but I'm sure that wasn't the case um so it was a weird one so we just played metal gear solid 4 so you'd think oh i can ask lots of searching questions about the game i just played and you know 
boy, if you've played that game, there are a lot of questions. Um, yeah, but uh, that was off the table. They um, they said no, we don't we don't want to spoil the game. These are all pre-release interviews because there was um, weirdly like a preview embargo before the review embargo. We could talk yeah. about the first level, so it was intended for that. And I was like, mm, how do I? kind of poke at the idea that the story in this game has some problems and the best i could really do was i asked him how much do you plan your stories in advance for the metal gear solid series and i believe his answer was um i don't plan my stories in advance um i don't have like a whole series arc in mind because i treat each game i make like it could be my last like i'm paraphrasing there but i'm pretty certain that's what he said sadly i no longer have the issue of play um around that um had that in there and he was a really good speaker I asked him a bunch of stuff. Here's the from hell aspect. Uh, my phone rings really fucking loud. I had a Nokia oh. thirty three ten because I didn't. I was like a bit of like um, I don't know. I, I just I didn't want to spend a lot of money on a phone, so I had this shitty old Nokia phone, and it went off, and it was like the loudest thing ever. And the reason I had it on is no no one had to call me. I was twenty and a staff writer on Play Magazine. No one had a reason to call me. Um, <laughs> but it was Konami calling, like one of the UK reps saying. Uh, we have to go now because we could miss the flight. And um, oh. I was there. And the moment my phone starts ringing in this hotel room with Hideo Kojima and like loads of like other kind of Konami personnel is one of the most like white hot mortifying moments of like, uh, I, you know, I was like this huge Metal Gear Solid fan. It felt really significant that, you know, two years before I was playing Metal Gear Solid 3, uh, you know, during college, and then, like, here I am meeting the creator. On a personal level, that felt like a big deal. And then my phone goes off, and it's like, holy shit. And I think I did keep my phone on because I knew they were running behind, and it might be a bit frantic. Um, In the end, the Konami rep came upstairs, banged on the door, and then I had to just leave the interview halfway through. Um, Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah. So it was that thing of, like... Because she was really nice about it, like he bowed as I left, and I think he understood that, like you know, that the things were overrunning and people had to go, whatever. But it was still that was like the only time I met uh, Kashima. Obviously, that's a very rare interview. You don't see many of them with him, um, particularly mm. now. Well, it also explains why the uh, first boss in Metal Gear Solid Five is idiot phone boy. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, lots of people have been wondering about that one, trying to interpret it, but now we know. Yeah, the only way to defeat him is to let him leave uh, in an embarrassed <laughs> fashion. Let him leave and get on a plane <laughs> back to Bournemouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I felt that was worth mentioning. Do you know what, though? Like, I was still on cloud nine off the back of it because I was on such adrenaline. It was like, it felt like such a massive moment. He is the celebrity game developer, right? Like, he's the guy. So, um, yeah. yeah he's, 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 t- he's top five for sure. Mm. So... Yeah, that was the um, the from hell aspect. The um, only other thing that I kind of really remember asking him was, I think I asked him about like what kind of what were the types of games he was interested in, thinking I might get you know a juicy answer about Bioshock mm. or something. And I think he just said Super Smash Bros. Brawl. <laughs> and great, yeah. And it might just be because Snake was in it. I don't know, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's funny though because that answer he gave about um, I treat every game story like it was my last. So I was there thinking, why would you ever think that you, Hideo Kojima, would not have the chance to make another Metal Gear Solid game? And then obviously, like, seven years later, he's no longer at the studio. So he does have a habit of talking about his work in that way, though. Like, with Death Stranding, it was like, you know, we never knew if we'd be able to get this studio off the ground. And it's like, you're one of the most famous game developers in the world. Of course you were. You had yeah. all this Sony money. It wasn't, like, a miracle. Yeah. Um... Even so, though, do you, do you get the slight sense that like Sony was slightly disappointed with the performance of Death Stranding? Like, um, 
like it sounds like um they were pitching around for the next game and you'd think that sony would just bite their hand off to get another kojima game but i don't know who knows who he's working with next you know yeah we'll um, find out in an oral history in 15 years time <laughs> yep so that was um me meeting hideo kojima about a 20 minute interview in the end um it was still like i was still very i remember being in the cab afterwards like incredibly excited that it, it had even happened but yeah i i I don't remember much vividly from like 13 years ago, but I sure remember that phone going off and how that felt inside. Like the white hot shame. It was something else. Um, so about your next one, Matthew? Yeah, so it's a, a bit more niche, but like one I was really looking forward to was interviewing um, David Grossman, who uh, was one of the writers on the original Monkey Islands. And this was for Telltale's Monkey Island game on WiiWare. This was actually at a WiiWare like summit in London where they had, like, loads of people there. They had um, uh, Super Meat Boy was playable for the first time, and so lots of developers there talking through their various WiiWare games. And I remember thinking, like, oh, wow, like, Monkey Island meant, like, a huge amount to me when I was, uh, you know, a kid. I, you know, absolutely adored that game, one of the first games I was, like, really obsessed with. And so this was just, like, a real excitement to meet someone, and he was just so disinterested. You know, it didn't anything particular. He was just just didn't he just didn't seem to care. Like he just wasn't interested in the answers. He didn't say anything interesting. He wasn't funny, which I expected him to be like hilarious because of Monkey Island. And mm. the fact that he was there, sort of selling Monkey Island or a new Monkey Island, I thought, well, surely this would be in his element. But he was so like this this the thing I was talking about about like developers I think who maybe get sick of being asked about their glory days. And here was someone who's basically just gone, all right, let's go back to the glory days. Let's just do it again, you know. And I just got the sense that total reluctance to be there. Maybe he was just knackered because they'd flown him in from, you know, San Francisco or whatever to do a London WeWare event. Um, I think in my head, because, like, Tim Schafer, you know, I've never met him, but, like, on paper and when you see him on interviews or you basically, whenever you, you know, his social footprint, he is 100% like what you imagine Tim Schafer to be like. Mm. You know, a funny man who makes funny games. And this guy, like, really wasn't. And he just seemed kind of a bit, like, down. And I'm sure he's a really nice bloke. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I was just really, like, the gulf between what I was expecting and what I got was just vast. The older I am, the more I kind of empathise. Like, um, if all people wanted to, to do was ask me about stuff I did in my twenties and in my thirties, I want to like achieve more than I did in my twenties. Like, I am, um, I know, being in a kind of similar position, I think I would possibly feel the same way. So I kind of get it. Um, I mean, we are doing a podcast where we just talk <laughs> about our magazine glory days. <laughs> That's true. We talk about other stuff. We talk about new games too and uh, st- shit I buy <laughs> on keep, eBay. We keep telling people that it gets sadder later on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it's not that bad. It's fine. Um, but yeah, I uh, I see what you mean. Like, t- I have interviewed Tim Schafer, and he is exactly as you'd expect. He's extremely nice, extremely funny. Um, oh, that's what I wanted. I just, I don't know, you know, have a person, you know, there's, there's very few things that I have that kind of lengthy relationship with, you know, from my childhood. Um, so it was just a bit, it was just a bit of a bummer. But. Yeah, I think that was the universe's way of um, balancing out your shoot Takumi interview um yeah but yeah <laughs> it's like you know oh he thought he, he thought this was good well now we're gonna fuck him up um, <laughs> yeah. uh, mess with him emotionally uh yeah Should what about go- your next one <laughs> yeah okay so next one is uh toshihiro Nagoshi from uh, sega a very well-known figure among uh, yakuza fans so this was 2008 
Uh, it was my only trip to Japan uh, for a bunch of Sega games, including Valkyria Chronicles, um, back when it first released on PS3, and Sonic Unleashed, the uh, Werehulk nice. game. Um, so, yeah, so we were there to see those two games primarily, but the, Sega was also doing a belated release of Yakuza 2 on PS2. So I think Yakuza, the original Yakuza, was hyped up to be like a big deal. They had this like voice cast with Mark Hamill and other notable actors, and the game Lex kind Luther of... from Smallville. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, an icon on this podcast. Um, yeah, so it was way... We were, we were years before... Yakuza became the thing it is now, which is this very coveted, like, cult success in the West. Uh, Yakuza was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a very niche proposition. And Nagoshi, the developer, went into the room, was reading a magazine, didn't look up, didn't say hello, and basically delivered monosyllabic answers throughout the entire conversation. Like, um, one or two word answers. Kept reading the magazine, no eye contact, like... I didn't really. I don't think we ever really got a sense of why. I think someone maybe suggested that. Well, he's working on Yakuza Three at the moment, and like talking about this old game, blah blah blah. And I'm not like hugely offended by it years later. I do think it's been an obstacle to me, like liking Yakuza, knowing that like right. <laughs> the mind behind it has you know just wouldn't talk to me when I went into a room with him. Um, but this was 13 years ago. Who knows what kind of bad day he was having? Like if I had to meet. You know, if I was in my like forties and I um, was a game designer and I had to meet some like dweeb on a staff writer, uh, sorry, dweeb staff writer on a games magazine, I might not give a shit and just want to read my copy of like I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I was going to say loaded, but why would I be really loaded? It doesn't even exist. Um, <laughs> let's say Edge, my copy of Edge. Um, yeah, so but he's got like he, you know, it feels like he has I, I you know. I, he has like a kind of sort of persona. You know, he's quite a fashionable guy. He's quite like. He kind of sort of cuts quite an interesting kind of character, you know. He's quite a. I've 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 read interviews with him where he where he's been brilliant and really really open, and I have read interviews with him where it's clear that he he just isn't digging it. Yeah, like he seems quite kind of mercurial. Mm. Yeah, he's um, he's a figure where like uh, you know obviously he is important in the um fabric of games development like he's you know made f-zero gx and um super monkey ball like a an important creator for sure but i think that i don't think i really worshipped him as like a games uh sort of industry hero i used to read his edge columns i don't know if you ever read those matthew but um mm-hmm. or remember those but you know that was a thing that he did in the early noughties i believe um so yeah i don't know it was just one of those things where i came out of it like I don't know what I just um, what I just experienced, but I did uh, put a box out in the preview, basically just explaining like what he was like in person, and like it was kind of a never meet your hero sort of vibe to it. I think I was I was much more upset about it at the time than I am now. Now I don't really care, but yeah, <laughs> we had something like that when we were doing this uh, that hundred hundredth issue of O and M. I remember one of the things that was like pitched was something to do with Cameo and the wonderful 101. And in the end, we didn't get like Nintendo couldn't agree to do like a full feature with him or anything. But they were like, oh, we'll get, you know, if you send us some questions, we get him to answer some questions. So I think in the in like the back end of the section, we had these little like box outs dotted around the directory, which were like bonus episode uh, uh, issue 100 interviews with various people. 
and we sent him some just like some silly throwaway questions but they and they came back like translated but they were like like monosyllabic like single word answers right and you're like why but you know it was literally like you know oh you know you're excited about you know you know how wonderful 101's been received and it was like yes and then the next one was like you know oh you know do you think we're going to see more of this from you no and you're like what's the point like mm. what like why even translate something that was so bad i think we even put it in a mag and there's a comment on it which is like look at this terrible interview or something like that yeah <laughs> it's just rubbish it was like it was like him doing his frosty act on twitter which is odd because he's brilliant in loads of interviews mm. um but this he was just yeah, not interested yeah i've met him i met him for bayonetta and he was a great talker he was such a great talker in fact that at one point um <laughs> the translator just stopped translating what he was saying because i think it was just like not preferred that it was um uh it was published what he's what he was saying but yeah that's weird because <laughs> I, I did find him to be a great talker so yeah strange but um yeah that was negotiated there was not a single bit of salvageable um interview from that it was uh, pointless so it was a waste of time but um awesome <laughs> yeah yeah but uh nonetheless an interesting experience as years later i've seen you know yakuza blossom into this like massive um thing uh, among our peers so matthew what's your next one uh, this one was like a bit, a bit of a weird one. This was quite recently. This was an this was an on stage interview. I was asked to do it at EGX twenty nineteen, I think. Um, but I was asked to do it like two hours before because the person who was meant to be doing the interview was like ill or hadn't turned up or hadn't made it, and so I, you know, it was kind of like, a, oh, please, will you just go on and do this interview? I had to interview. Um, the chap David Johnson, who designed the map Dust for Counter Strike, for a session called "The Making of Counter Strike's Dust," and it was like a thirty to forty minute section, and I had two hours to prepare for an interview, a very in depth interview about a map in a game I haven't played. I haven't played Counter Strike. Um, I'm not embarrassed to say that. Just just skipped it. Never doesn't you know? I'm not a big multiplayer shooter guy. And all of a sudden I was faced with, I have to talk for half an hour about something I've literally no idea about. And so I was just trying to like research it as quickly as possible, trying to find some damn things to ask, thinking not only do I have to interview someone about something I don't know about, it's going to be front of an audience of people who really love that map and know about it. Like this is going to be so obvious if this is bogus. Mm. Um and luckily, he'd written this really in-depth like making of of the map on like on his own personal website. So he basically read that and then quickly reverse engineered like what can I ask him to basically get him to read this article out? Hmm. So you know, finding the right questions at the things. But I still look back at it and it was streamed out and everything, and think like it must have been so bogus because like way I just didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, the the legendary ramp in the middle. And, <laughs> you know, just a total fraud. I think I pulled it out of the bag, but I've never felt, like, dirtier doing something. Um, well, please don't people go and find that interview on YouTube because it's probably <laughs> really obvious. Like, I had no idea what I was talking about. This ha- terrible. This happens all the time, though, in Games Media, Matthew. Like, the number one skill that, like, gets you through in Games Media is the ability to bluff convincingly. Like, um, you might have to do all kinds of stuff as a kind of staff writer or whatever. Like, oh, it- yeah, but, the- but there's bluffing... 
it's the fact that it was so public and it was sold as like an expert deep dive <laughs> and it's like you couldn't have found someone less expert if you tried right um like any member of that crowd could have probably done a better job i am in i am in agreement like the art the art of this is of this stuff is is like prepping and getting yourself to a point where you don't make a fool of yourself and that you know i feel like i have that skill and that's why i got through the interview mm-hmm. um but it's the short notice. I actually had a very similar thing with. Um, I went to preview, uh, play a, a early build of uh, like Mortal Kombat, like Armageddon or something. I don't know. It was an, uh, like a 2008 Mortal Kombat port for the Wii, and I got there and played it. And they were like, "Oh, here's your interview with Ed Boon." And I was like, "Oh shit! I, I like I don't play Mortal Kombat. I'm not a Mortal Kombat guy at all." In fact, but all I had in my head was Kitsy had written uh, quite a funny, good feature on Mortal Kombat the month before. So I was just trying to recall details from that. And my questions are so vague. They're like, so, fatalities. And the thing about Ed Boone, he's such a pro that he very politely didn't like react to how bad the interview was. And he was just talking through all this stuff. Basically, I, I was just barking terms at Mortal Kombat in him. And then he'd tell me the story about like how they came to be all that thing. And it was probably covering really old ground, but we had a nice chat. It was fun. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, again, like, you know, that's someone who is going to know what the, the deal is. You're there to, like, sell the yeah, thing. Yeah, he got it, though. He was good. He was very, very kind. I always look kindly on his games because he took, he took pity on me and, and didn't, like, drag me over the coals, which he could have easily have done. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I've not played um, Counter-Strike either, actually. That's another of my egregious um, missing PC games. But um, I don't work on PC Gamer now, so um, no one can call me out for it. But... Um... Hey, I've played yeah. Valorant, uh, which is I I understand is just the Riot version of CS:GO, and that is uh, that is very fun actually. We should play that sometime, Matthew. It's good. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, after you, after you learn what dust is, um, yeah. It's so, a, oh, it's a great map. <laughs> oh, the ramp in the middle. Oh, oh, the ramp. Oh, the, the fun mwah, we had on kiss. that ramp. <laughs> um, okay, my next one, then, Matthew, is uh, Masahiro Sakurai, uh, best known as the figure behind um super smash bros so the director and also the creator of kirby i believe mm-hmm. so this was 2013 so quite a long there's quite a long gap here between the um the this interview and the last one i talked about just in case people think that like i spent you know my entire year years in um games media interviewing like notable figures like um these are spread out over many years so at this point, I was editor of Games TM. Um, Games TM had quite a good re- relationship with Nintendo, got good access. In the, I was only on the magazine for about 10 months, but we had an email Q&A with Aonuma and um, an in-person interview with um, Sakurai E3 uh, just in that period. So, you know, exciting. Like, Nintendo access, genuinely exciting. Uh, this one, uh, it was right around the time that Super Smash Bros. for um, Wii U and 3DS was... Um, announced and being talked about and was playable and so at a 45 minute interview slot with um sakurai uh i got the times wrong um i was an hour late it was an hour earlier than i thought it was i got a phone call from nintendo asking oh your uh, interview starting in 15 minutes are you you, um gonna be here and stuff and i was there thinking fuck it wasn't too bad because I had spent the evening before reading like about it and about what people think of Smash Bros and stuff like that. But mm. every single question was off the cuff. I read nothing on a piece of paper. Every single question was just like, 
I was running on adrenaline. And I was just like, okay, you know, how do you make a game for Wii U and 3DS and have parity between the, you know, content and, um, you know, why did you choose to bring these characters in from these different games? That sort of stuff. Um, yeah. The interview was, like, perfectly fine. But that kind of, like, I was just very fortunate because... I would much. I set aside an hour before the interview, or I thought it had, to actually sit down and do questions. And um, yeah, because of the of my mistiming, I actually had to just go and like do it, you know, straight off the cuff. So um, yeah, like um, thankfully I didn't like squander the opportunity. But that was very like ah oh, shit. Like I'm gonna actually absolutely screw up the most exciting opportunity I have here. The other interesting yeah. thing is about this one is that I um, fell afoul slightly of a Smash Bros. fan site who I think took issue with um, a way I misinterpreted one of his answers about DLC characters. And I think they were right. But I remember thinking, uh, the thing is, there's a gulf here between what I know that Smash Bros., hardcore Smash Bros. players want to read and what I want to read as someone who's quite a, like a... I will play probably any Smash Bros. game, I will play between like 20 and like 80 hours. But that is all I will ever play. Um and yeah. so sometimes you encounter that where like a fa- a series has like a very fierce fan base but um you're not necessarily in that bracket you are in a slightly more casual version of that fan base and you're trying to figure out what to write about that's like interesting in a kind of broad way i think this is yeah. something that writers um who cover destiny probably struggle with as well but um yeah what do you make of that one matthew yeah, I know, I've been in those those sort of crazy last minute off the cuff ones. Um, I don't think I've ever missed an interview, which is which is good. Um, the one person from Nintendo I have interviewed was at E3 in 2013, 14, um, where I got a call from Edge saying that their Edge guy couldn't make it to their Nintendo interview because Endgamer hadn't been invited. Um <laughs> because we never did, to, to Nintendo interviews. So that was like, can you go and do our interview with Iguchi, who at the time was like producer of Nintendo Land. It was the year Wii U got shown off properly for the first time. He was the producer of Nintendo Land. And um, back in the past, uh, he's I'm pretty sure he's Mr. Animal Crossing um, to begin with. Um, and... That was like a nightmare because it was like having to prepare super quickly. But it was also the, wow, this is the only time I've ever been allowed to interview someone from Nintendo. It's the first time it's happened. And it was for Edge magazine. And that added an extra layer of, I felt like I had to ask Edge kind of questions. Mm. You know, like if I was doing it Endgamer style, it would be a very different interview. You know, a lot sillier, a bit more casual. But I felt like I was doing like an impression of what I thought Edge would want. Um, And trying to get like... Because they'd shown off the Wii U, and it was at, and it, it was also like an hour after the Nintendo E3 conference. It was the second year they showed Wii U. Actually, that's mm. the year they showed Nintendo Land in its proper form, and it was a very disappointing conference. So I was in a megaly bad mood about it because I was just like, oh god, I was feeling quite bad about Wii U's launch prospects. And then I had to go and do this like serious edge interview with that mindset. And I was trying not to be too bleak about it, but I felt like hypercritical and I just felt like it was an interview where I, I just couldn't really be true to myself for like many different reasons. Um, but it was fine. Like the answers were fine and, you know, I think they used it fine enough, you know, but just not not the dream situation. I mean, that was the same E3 where I was just spending a lot of time around the Nintendo booth hoping that I might get like an interview with someone else at some point. 
I remember the Nintendo PR came up to me and went, um, sent, oh, I haven't managed to get you an interview, but like, you know, I know that there's, I know there's someone that you've never met that you've always wanted to meet. And, um, you know, I've managed to, you know, if you come with me now, we we can, we can do this. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get to meet Miyamoto. I can't wait. And he introduced me to fucking Charles Martinet. <laughs> Who's like, hello, Matthew, it's a me. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. I mean, the exact opposite of what I wanted. <laughs> That's like the one person I didn't want to meet at E3. I'd rather have met like another random journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, to create a kind of a bit of a picture for people at home of what Nintendo's E3 booth is like, it's um, it lo- always looks like a theme park. They have these like massive sort of dedicated areas to different games they've got there. So... Last time I was there, it was um, Luigi's Mansion 3 had its own sort of like haunted house style kind of like, uh, you know, closed off section. And then at a certain point, they've got like a check-in desk and then like loads of like demo booths behind a sort of velvet rope. And then above that upper staircase is basically where all the talent is. Um, yeah. In this kind of like, I don't know, do they call it a tree house? I think they call it something like that, right? Um, but yeah, it's uh, that's where I went to um, meet sakurai and uh i was i brushed past um iwata like that was oh it was like i saw him for like you know two seconds but it was just a very like wow kind of like moment it was um not realizing he'd just be wandering well, around this kind of business area. imagine ascending those stairs to meet charles martinet <laughs> uh, no offense to charles martinet i'm sure he's lovely but um well he is lovely you know, i've met him <laughs> but yeah not really not what i wanted <laughs> it was quite interesting interviewing um sakurai at a time where it felt like it was very obvious the wii u was not what nintendo wanted it to be um so it's quite an interesting time to talk to someone from uh, nintendo he was very nice he was a very um very informative interviewee so the from hell element is nothing to do with him um yeah you can tell from just watching those um smash bros character reveal videos he's an extremely nice man but um yeah just wanted to share the story matthew so why don't you hit me with your next one so this one is like as an interview it was absolutely fine but it's an example of like when you interview someone who's just got completely the wrong idea of their game or rather it's when you play a game you think it's terrible and then you have to interview someone i always find very awkward because i feel like i'm having to put like a nice sort of face on it i'm not a rude person i'm not going to be like i thought that was bad um but I, I I do struggle with interviews where I've played something I don't like and I then have to talk to the person or I'm really underwhelmed with the premise or the promise of the game. Um, and this was not a big game at all. I won't even, I won't name the guy to spare him the embarrassment, but I went to, it was like a day of EA demos at Guildford. I went to Guildford and I just, and it was like a day of playing like Wii and DS games, lots of different things they had at the time. And they had this DS RPG called Zubo, um, where you played as these little, like, I think they were like anthropomorphic drums, um, little drums with faces, but it had like a rhythm element. It was like a turn based RPG where you kind of tap the screen. So it was a little bit Owen Danny as well. Um, I remember playing this thing, just thinking like, well, this is absolute like five out of ten reviews round up, Gufferoony, just don't have to think about it. And I remember interviewing the guy and he had such a self-inflated sense of, of worth for this game. Uh, you know, I can't remember what I asked him to get this answer for, but I was sort of talking about his inspirations maybe or, you know, when building an RPG, kind of where, where do you sort of start from? 
And he said, um, he said, well, the first thing I did is I, I played Final Fantasy VII. He said, and then I asked myself, how can I fix this? And I remember thinking, what? And your answer is make an RPG about living drums. <laughs> like, it was just mad. I know it's, a, it's the hardest I've had not to work, just to burst out laughing in an interview and say, I'm afraid you failed. Um, this is terrible, a terrible game. And I couldn't believe it. And I didn't actually use that quote because I felt so embarrassed for him to say something so stupid. I was just like, man, alive, like, get over yourself. This is bad. You've made a bad game. It's like, um, it's like Garth Morangi energy to that quote, I think. Oh, just, how can I fix this? And you're like, wow. I mean, interesting answer you found. <laughs> man, that sounds like hard work. Um, so Zubo. Yeah, I can't say I remember that game, but um, I sure remember uh, EA being one of the pu- publishers that was making a lot of shovelware for the um, the DS and the Wii. But um, yeah. They made some all right stuff too. Show me on to my next one, Matthew. Go for it. Cool. So the next one is, and this is very different to my other examples. This is on PC Gamer in 2019. It's with uh, DC, the creative director of a 1.6 million Kickstarter success uh, sort of game project called Subverse. It's a porn game. A porn game that looks like Mass Effect, kind of, in a kind of very trashy way. Um it was an email interview. I don't think I think DC was like a pseudonym. I don't believe I learned their real name, but um, nonetheless, they were like uh, FOW Interactive. They made this game. It's like a genre hybrid. Had like XCOM elements and then some other kind of like RPG <laughs> interacting with waifus element. I believe it was. Mm. Um, <laughs> so this was interesting because actually, like I think it's actually one of the stronger features I did when working on the website. I did it because the amount of money meant that it was definitely like a worthwhile thing for us to like write about because there was this high level of interest but also had to thread this line of like good taste for the website but also you kind of sensed that there were going to be a lot of people going oh you don't get this game you don't understand it you're just like a woke critic who is not interested in like even engaging with it you just want to show how like you know how sort of politically correct you are and I was quite wary of that so I sort of approached it as, first of all, the first thing I did, no one ever commented on this. In the first paragraph, this is a very widely read article, um, I said, how do I put this? It's not my sort of thing. And in that sentence, I hyperlinked the clip from Peep Show where Mark says, I'm Louis Theroux. I'm Louis Theroux at the orgy. Um, (laughs) To basically tell people, this is how I see myself. I'm Louis Theroux at the orgy. Um, Asking wry questions about this um, very, like... uh, (laughs) odd looking sex game um that really wasn't you know there's just to me there was just nothing like visibly sexy about it it was very um very grim looking um so i tried to ask very searching questions about like oh so what's your kind of XCOM style combat like and all this sort of stuff and like um you know why do you think this did make so much um so much money and um you know and asking about their previous projects were like which were like these cg porn versions of like um different games characters and stuff like that um, nice. Uh, yeah, it was a, a mega red article, but like, um, yeah, a very hard one to figure out tonally. Uh, so I thought it was worth sort of talking about. It was just, it involved like getting into contact with um, uh, GOG because they'd suggested that um, the developer suggested that GOG had not answered their emails about being listed on the service. And so GOG right. responded 
um they had previously been kicked off of patreon for um violating their um their guidelines and so i had to get like a quote from them about why studio fow was no longer allowed on there um and it ended up becoming like this quite rich sort of feature on something that in that moment was seemed like it was big news so I think we were the only ones who who did it. Um, I think most people. I would understand if a lot of people just look at a sex game that's kind of got all these like women that are, like you said in the uh, previous episode, breasts with feet, um, and just kind of wrote <laughs> it off. But this is that thing of like, well, this is the big thing that's happening in PC gaming right now. So let's ask some actual like sincere questions about what game are you making? What are you actually selling to people? Um, so yeah, that was just one I wanted to talk about, Matthew. And uh, you surprisingly became a big convert through that interview process as well. Yeah, I'm now executive producer on the game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to the I, race. You, you, you spent ten grand getting the highest Kickstarter tier. Uh, yeah, that's it. Like uh, I got to like name my own waifu in the game. Um, <laughs> it was a great honour uh, and the best use of money um, I could have done. Anyway, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I was Louis Theroux at the orgy, and um, I lived to tell the tale. <laughs> Fantastic. What's the next one, Matthew? Uh, so this is this is one that you you were sort of semi involved with, uh, or at least you were around for the aftermath of this, <laughs> which is the 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 infamous time where um, I can't even remember what year it was. Twenty sixteen, maybe. Yep, that's right. Uh, yeah, Gamescom twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen Gamescom, uh, where on the opening day, as I was walking uh, through the car park to get into the convention center. Uh, in Cologne, I tripped over quite badly and cut my knee open um, in the car park. And I was, you know, I, I get quite panicked about getting into Gamescom at the best of times because it's kind of a lucky dip about which door you go in, whether you actually make your first appointment. Mm. Uh, because sometimes they let people in, sometimes they don't. It, the system's never really made much sense to me. Um, and I had, I was on official Xbox magazine at the time and I had all my xbox stuff lined up that first morning so it's quite essential that i actually made it there in time um but i tripped over and it was just terrible i was wearing um like three quarter length sort of track you know shorts um at a time and i had all this blood coming down my leg and like into the material of the trousers just very bad a very bad cut and it was this moment of like well, what do i do do i go in like, do I go into the convention centre bleeding, or do I try and do something about this? And they had a first aid station, which I which I sort of went managed to get, go in there, and the person didn't speak much English, and I was just trying to kind of communicate that I just wanted something to patch it up so I could go in and do this interview. And they put all this like, what's that brown stuff you put on wounds? Uh, I don't um, know. Uh, if it wasn't a Metal Gear Solid Three, I don't know what it is. Um, it was this brown sort of anti and disinfectant like stuff antiseptic thing mm-hmm. so they're pouring this stuff over so my leg was like stained with like blood and brown streaks from all this stuff and <laughs> they put this huge thing on it wasn't as bad as all that i don't think but they put this big like bandage on it and it was all kind of bleeding through the bandage a bit it just looked absolutely minging but i managed to make it in in time and um the first thing i had i'm pretty sure was like forza horizon 3 uh was like the first session i went into and xbox the the way the kind of booze in the press room work is like x each, each publisher has like a 
like a little area that they kind of it's kind of walled off so you can't see inside and then inside it's got all these small offices where they do demos of various games and they usually fit like three journalists a developer and a tv to show the demo or whatever and it was all very pristine on the because it's the first day and i think they had this big like fluffy carpet they try and make it feel quite luxurious because they're also they've got like important commercial clients there i remember going into this room with this my leg just looked awful like it looked it really looked like i'd been in a bad accident i think no his blood everywhere and i remember meeting um uh ralph from playground games was there for for forza horizon 3 and he was just like very put like oh god you know your knees all right i was like oh yeah yeah all this but it just looked really bad and you know he was looking quite nervously at it um and there was this you know you know that you know that thing in the in the office or the u.s office where they where people like something bad's happening and someone just looks at the camera and like grimaces yeah i saw a lot of that that day <laughs> of people like looking at my knee and being like uh like does he know and it's like yes i know the three things that were going through their head was like does he know like is he going to be okay and the big one was like is he going to bleed in our press room <laughs> because i think people were quite aware of like you didn't you know want people getting blood all over your couch on day one of gamescom it's not a great look um and so i kept going in every session i went into someone would look at my knee when i walked into the room and be like you know and then try and not make a thing of it or they'd look at it and then look at their friend and sort of like sort of wince or something and it's going around to the point where like uh by the end of the day, like, somehow news of my knee had, like, spread amongst other journalists. Right. And I was going into, like, rooms with complete strangers, and it'd be like, oh, it's the knee guy! <laughs> it's like, oh, it's oh yeah, it looks terrible. <laughs> and, like, they knew about it already. Um, and, yeah, so I just spent the day... Like, the interviews were all fine, but it was just this day of, like, being hyper-aware of this really unpleasant thing that other people had to deal with. Yeah. It was fun, though. It was funny. We had some good laughs about it. Yeah, so uh, you and I shared a hotel room that year. And yeah. <laughs> I feel like we bonded over this shattered knee. Um, this is, like, very much the start of our, like, uh, you know, sort of proper friendship, I think. Um, the funniest thing I remember from, from this is that um, one night I went to, like, a Gamescom party. And um, as I was leaving, you went, are you leaving because of the knee? And I just went, No. <laughs> And it was like this kind of like, you were very like, I think very sensitive about the fact that I was, you were joking, but the idea that I was just going to a party to get away from the knee, um, which to be honest, was probably going through my mind a little bit. Um, (laughs) The other thing I remember is that like, um, I kept kind of glancing at it and then like, I think I mentioned something about how like there was this kind of like white looking fluid under it. And I think like... (laughs) I think I kind of like maybe suggested, is this some kind of like knee fluid? What is this white stuff? And you had to explain, <laughs> oh no, that was like the antiseptic that was healing it. But it was like looking at this knee with this white stuff that I thought was some kind of like knee pus was like, <laughs> it was like, it was like the most cursed object at Gamescom 2016, your knee. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was quite fun. But like, there's still, there's still like PRs to stay that like, the only thing they know about me is my knee and they'll still joke about it in emails they're like how's the knee and you're like yeah it's good thank you it healed four years ago um but uh i like that you know 
after eight years of doing the job, I finally had something. I, I finally did something vaguely memorable that <laughs> PRs and developers would remember me, albeit for the wrong reasons. But you don't and really... I don't think I did bleed on anyone's room. Um, it did look terrible, though. It really looked like the brown stuff in particular. It just looked like everything was coming out of the knee. Oh. And you were like, they've put stuff on it. Like, I didn't generate the brown. Like, the blood is mine. The brown is this other bloke. To be honest, I mean, it's nice that it kind of like um, that Gamescom had that facility to sort you out. If this had happened in America, they'd have been like, well, that'll cost you 100 grand, mate. And like, that would have been the end yeah. of your life. You know yeah, I mean? and got, yeah, that guy, big help. And I didn't miss an interview. I'm a pro. Yeah. Uh, sorry, are you just taking like pot shots at me for missing my Yushi Hori interview? Is that what this is? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No. <laughs> uh, I'm just getting defensive about it. Um, no, that was, um, yeah, like very. it was very memorable. But people knew who you were. You won the Games Media Awards Legend Award yeah. by then, right? Like, you yeah. were a legend. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I like the idea that you had to destroy your knee in order to be remembered. Like, that's... Um, yeah. Yeah. They'll remember me. Yeah. Go out with a bang. Yeah, I remember that Gamescom very vividly. Um, good times. But um, yeah, so my last one, Matthew. Um, it's not one from hell, but I thought it was worth talking about because it's probably like the most high-profile person I've interviewed um, working in games media. So Phil Spencer, the head of Xbox, I interviewed in June uh-huh. 2019 for E3. Um, so Game has quite strong ties with... Uh, I think because um, Xbox has obviously been pushing into PC for a few years now. Um, they knew that PC Game was the biggest PC gaming outlet, so you know, getting access to Phil Spencer was like a fairly regular occurrence. But um, I think like one of my bosses had to like cancel doing the interview because they were double booked for something. So I got to do this interview, and I think it was about forty minutes with Phil Spencer, um, and it was really, really good. And I think like what's interesting about him is that obviously he's the boss. And I think he's kind of fostered this thing at Xbox of being like super transparent about stuff. Um, there's not really, he gives you the sense that like there aren't really any questions that you can't ask, and he'll give you like a pretty honest answer. So I think he's quite a good interviewee. He didn't really play his cards close, close to his chest at all. I asked him what he thought about the Epic Game Store. Again, like I say, that was like the big thing at the time, um, less of a big thing now. Asked about Game hmm. Pass on PC, asked about will you bring all of your like existing Xbox games to PC. Um, you know, like um, they were just going to announce they were going to release their games on Steam um, from PC. So um, it was like quite a significant moment in their sort of journey on PC. So got to ask about that. I asked about the return of Flight Simulator, which is a big deal at the time. That was when uh, he told me, I think that like, oh yeah, a bunch of us at Microsoft are pilots. And I was there thinking, hey, like that's a proper like rich person's domain kind of hobby. You know what I mean? It's not like right. <laughs> it's not like there are people I know in Bath who are also pilots. Um, that was quite interesting. But yeah, just really interesting. Like um, E3 is in obviously the LA Convention Center. Next to E3 is something called LA Live, which is kind of like a sort of sort of plaza of like shops and stuff, which is connected to the Staples Center, which is like this big sports venue. And they were in like some sort of like side office in um, LA Live. And that's where I went to do this interview. And uh, yeah, it was probably like the most interesting, it was definitely the most interesting thing I did at that E3. But um, yeah, the most high profile person I interviewed. Phil Spencer asking him about PC stuff. Oh, that's good. A real pro. I, I had a I had a, a nightmare interview situation with Phil Spencer for the wrong reasons. Uh, when I was doing Xbox on, we got a very rare interview slot where he was over in the UK, and they were like, "You can go and do a video and interview him." It was like a pre three like hype video or something, mm. and it's like your video team could go and interview him, and you know, 
we were doing the official Xbox YouTube channel, so we really didn't want to mess up. And um, we went there. Uh, we went to this hotel. We stayed up the night before because we knew it was going to be an early start to do this interview. And it was like, right, we, we just can't mess this up. You know, we've got to seem as professional as possible. And then when we got there, I realized one of our uh, lapel mics had broken. And we didn't have a backup for some reason. And I was like, shit, we've got like an hour into we're doing this interview with Phil Spencer and we're literally only going to get half of the audio. I had a total freak out about it. And so I was just looking up local electricity, sh- uh, local like electric supplier shops to see if anyone had like a, you know, in stock lapel mic. And there was one about 20 minutes away. And I remember having to sprint through London at like nine in the morning to get to this lapel shot. And I am not built for sprinting. Like I'm a big, slow, unhealthy person. And I was, and I was, remember, I was, I was legging it down. I remember at the time, um, I ran past, of all people, um, David Cross. Right, okay. Uh, and I remember thinking, like, wow, David Cross, but also thinking, shit, I'm going to get fired if I don't get this lapel mic. Right. Uh, and having to sprint back there. And by the time I got, and I managed to make it just in time, just before Phil Spencer got to the room. But because I've been, like, running around London to get this lapel mic, I was sweating so bad. Like, I, I genuinely looked like I was about to have a heart attack. Mm. And I felt I had to go and hide in another room in the hotel suite because I didn't want Phil Spencer to see me looking like. Because it would probably freak him out a bit if you went into a room and there's just a really out-of-breath, red-sweating man. Um, just an absolute nightmare. Like a genuine career low, like running to get that mic. That <laughs> uh, sucks. Yeah, that does sound incredibly stressful. I, uh, I don't know. did it, there. and they were happy with the interview, and it did well. So, you know, needs must. Yeah. But... Well, that is a tale of woe. I wasn't Imagine expecting... if I died in front of David Cross. <laughs> yeah. Um he would have probably worked that into a bit of material. Yeah, that would have been a great honour for you, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, th- I I really like Phil Spencer. Like, I think he's um, he's just yeah, his honesty is just is just kind of like refreshing, and um, I think it helps that Xbox being on the back foot uh, for the last like five years, basically five years or longer, really means that they um, you know, the honesty thing is I, I would imagine tied into that somewhat. It's like well. If we are on a, open about all the things we're doing at Microsoft, our acquisitions, the kind of types of games we want to make, and you know the stuff that we're building specifically for PC players, then that doesn't that does invite you to be a bit more confident as an interviewer to um, ask more searching questions. Mm. I, I think out of this as well, we did get like a news story about Age of Empires for a game that has been like long in the works, and um, I still haven't really seen much of it. But um, mm. yeah, it was uh, it was good. It was. Um, yeah, kind of a good capper. This is around the time that I left PC Gamer, so it was, uh, yeah, one of the cool last things I did. Mm, but, um, very good. Yeah, so there we go, Matthew. We've, um, I think we've reached the end of our interview chat. Is there anything else that you kind of wanted to point towards before we do our usual outro gubbins? Uh, not really. Just that, uh, you know, hats off to people who do very good interviews. It's very hard. It's one area of the job where I feel like you know, people who have had like formal jur- journalism training often bring a little extra spark to it. Like I didn't have any myself, but um, you know, and I sometimes think sniffily, like who would do those courses? Because I can do this job, and I didn't do those courses. Mm. But then I remember there are some quite specific skills which you do get taught, and people who've come from that background tend to be much better at them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I would say for my part, I will um, I will link in the um, tweets that we do for this episode to a couple of the interviews I've mentioned here, which are actually online. The rest of them are all in um, 
print magazines that are lost to time or at least lost to uh, me moving house several times and not wanting to carry <laughs> magazines across the country. Um, but yeah, Matthew, to wrap up then, what's uh, where can people find you on Twitter? They can find me at MrBasil underscore pesto. You can find me at Samuel W. Roberts. If you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's uh, at BackpagePod. You can also email us questions at BackpageGames at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a review on the platform of your choice, that'd be much appreciated. Apple Podcasts in particular, those reviews really help us in terms of growth, and we have been sort of steadily growing as we've been making these. So thank you very much for your support. Yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll be back next week, Matthew, with a subject I have forgotten, but we have agreed and tweeted about. Um, I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Uh, But yeah, we'll be back next Friday, but thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Bye-bye.